This is Cinema Degeneration. I am the devil, and I am here to do the devil's work. I, I just can't take no pleasure in killing that. Just some things you gotta do. We all go a little mad sometimes. You wanna know what happens to an eyeball when it gets punctured? You just can't let them go? Go! Hi, I'm Chucky, wanna play? <laughs> Please, God. This is God. The dead will walk here. I'm just gonna bash your brains. And your suffering will be legendary even in hell. <laughs> it's alive, it's alive, it's alive. They all flow down here. They're coming to get you, Barbara. Boy, you're On our show tonight, Howling Under the Full Moon, we will explore Charles Band's Empire Full Moon Entertainment. We've got trancers, sci-fi epics, and vampires all in one place. When you need a break from reality, let our host show you through the madhouse of killer bombs, psychopathic cookies, and maniacal puppets. Don't be a squid and join us in the fun. Lands of space. There's a wild new frontier. You got a problem, Red Eye? Yeah! Yeah, I got a problem! Where the good guys are only human. You get out of town, or I'll kill you. You ain't gonna kill nobody. And the bad guys are not. <laughs> We're gonna show the good people of oblivion the great advantages. To a town run by Red Eye. Ah! Where the liquors hide. Jim, beat me up. And the women are wild. Delicious. And the natives are on the warpath. Because in this town, it's not cowboys and Indians. Not so fast, Pocahontas. It's cowboys and aliens. My family's spirits cry out to be avenged. I love the way this guy talks. Is that a fact? Definitely. Oblivion. It's high noon in outer space. All righty, folks. Welcome once again to. Howling at the Full Moon here at Cinema Degeneration, and we have a special sci-fi epic. We have a special Western epic. We have, have, you know what? We have both a Western epic and a sci-fi epic rolled into one. We are doing Oblivion from 1994, directed by Sam Irvin, uh, who also brought us uh, Oblivion 2, Elvira's Haunted House, or Haunted Hills. So he's uh, you know, a genre filmmaker in good standing, and he's worked with uh, Full Moon before. I- he did a Moonbeam film called Magic Island that starred Zachary Ty Bryan and also Andrew Dilloff. Yes. And folks, if you don't know by now, this is my 
good friend Dustin Hubbard, our co-host, our usual cohort in crime and co-host for uh, Cinema Degeneration, Silent at the Full Moon. So we've been recording like madmen this week. <laughs> we've done shows three days in a row and didn't even manage to cover the one film that we in, in, initially were setting out <laughs> to cover. So we're going to have to do another one, damn it. Just shucks. It happens. It happens, but we covered a couple really good ones this week, and th- this one, I know we always talk about the really good ones, but most of them are, but this movie, God, it holds a special place in my heart. You know, you know, there's just certain movies, that, you know, there's, that's in the full moon library that are just more special to you than others, if that makes sense, and this is the one of those ones for me. It's a wonderful, beautiful mixture of westerns and sci-fi and it's it's a perfect mesh of the two genres not a genres that you would think uh would be you know cohesive together but it works it really works and this was the the last film to be released through the the bull moon through the paramount label so this was the last of the great paramount money yep yeah it was the last official full moon movie released by paramount uh, but there were a handful of holdovers from the Moonbeam label that they kept. <laughs> so it trickled out over the next year or two after Oblivion. But Oblivion was the last bona fide full moon movie. Now, I mean, they uh, Paramount had dropped them between the release of this and Oblivion 2, which is why Oblivion 2, even though that they were filmed back to back with each other took an extra two and a half years to come out yes yeah but yeah you can kind of tell though once if you watch oblivion one and two back to back you can kind of tell they were filmed at the same time you using those same actors in the same sets but i mm-hmm. don't care and i don't mind it's a, a series i mean you can call it a series there's only two of them i really wish that they had, uh, you know, made a couple of more of them, but you know, that's kind of like with everything, you know, transfers always wish they made a couple or more subspecies definitely wish they made a few more, but this is one of those kind of tentpole series that I, I, I hold in high regard. I know some people don't like it very much, but I do love this movie. Uh, we will give the quick IMDb synopsis here for oblivion 1994. On another planet which resembles the Old West, a diehard pacifist is forced to re-examine his ways after an evil alien bandit and his gang murder his estranged sheriff father, take over his hometown, and threaten his friends. And that's pretty straight on and, and, and right to the point. I like, I like a, a synopsis like that. It doesn't give, you, give too much away, but tells you everything you need to know. And I love the intro. Uh, to get right off into it, I love the intro to this. Starting off with it's, it's like an episode of Bonanza, and then a ship that looks akin to the Millennium Falcon. It kind of looks a bit Millennium Falconish, you know, flying over the you know the horizon, and then you get that sign that just says Oblivion Population Five Thirty Nine, and then mm-hmm. we don't, and then we quickly is turned to Five Thirty Eight by our wonderful bad guy andrew devoff is red eye although you don't really know who he is at first you just kind of catch glimpses you never see his face but once you see that beautifully gorgeous ugly face of his uh the reptilian face uh i i love it i love the red eye character he's one of my favorite villains yeah it's it's definitely 
of note to say that the opening of this movie has some really great editing and build up with the way you see the arrival of Red Eye. They keep his identity secret and you see him slowly working his way into town and his effect on the environment. And, you know, the (laughs) all the fans stop, the, the bulbs pop. You know, yeah, as he walks by, yeah, as he walks by, every bulb and glass just shatters. Everyone's afraid of him. You know, he he's kind enough to release uh, Stogie Joe, <laughs> our director. <laughs> uh, yeah, say that's our director cameo, isn't it? Yep, yep, he's nice enough to set him free, but it, it intercuts between him and I believe the marshal at Miss Kitty's. And that whole situation, and it, you know, just very cleverly goes back and forth until you get the real reveal of Red Eye entering Miss Kitty's. Yeah, and Miss Kitty. Uh, let's talk about Miss Kitty's saloon. Yeah, uh, uh, it goes right straight to Miss Kitty into destroying the town ceiling fans. And wait, before we talk about Miss Kitty, we got to talk about how this town is set up. It, it is very much like, you know. Just an old west kind of ghost town. Now we're not a ghost town, but just an old western town. But there's little things and nuances that let you know you're somewhere else. Like the roving, you know, ceiling fans that are just hovering above the streets. You know, the overhead fans that are just circulating air in the middle of the street. and, And just everything has a very westerny look, but there's those... Little nuances. You see little satellite dishes or hovering spacecraft. And I just... Love and, and the bank machines <laughs> and the bank machines and a bank ATM that people quickly abandon that and their money when they see red eye coming because they know that they know that the shit's about ready to hit the fan that stopped right <laughs> yeah it's going to hit the proverbial dead fan <laughs> but we get Marshall Stone uh, played by Michael Genovese uh, who's also in another. Uh, uh, full Moon film, Dark Angel, The Ascent. And I also remember him from playing uh, a a gangster in Code of Silence, which was another favorite movie of mine. But he's at Miss Kitty's Saloon, played by the wonderful Julie Newmar, still doing a ravishing Catwoman impression after all these years. <laughs> and, you know, she's playing it for all she's worth, and it, it, it's just great. That's why I've got so many names underlined in here, because there are so many great just genre actors in this movie. It probably has, not even probably, this has the, pop, the, the, the most illustrious, you know, cast in all of Full Moon's history, I would think. It's definitely got one of the most stacked casts for any Full Moon movie, definitely, because it's it's packed wall-to-wall with like cult icons. Oh yeah. For, for people from, you know, Star Wars or Star Trek and, you know, they live and then you got uh, Andrew Deboff in there and Andrew Deboff, you got him playing your lead villain. You know, you got something special. This, <laughs> Andrew, this is the, the fucking wish master folks. Andrew in a dual role, kind of, a, he, I guess he was sort of a dual role and wish master as well as the wish master and Nathaniel Demarest. But, uh, <laughs> Gets his little uh, dual role in Oblivion as well. Yeah, yeah, and he put, he plays opposite Isaac Hayes in that scene. We'll get to that eventually because mm-hmm. I got a note about that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, when he, everything when he walks by, shit, he's so badass, shit just stops working. And you know, 
Gaunt. I uh, love the, the Gaunt character that uh, I'm probably going to mispronounce his name, but Carol Struken, uh, who played uh, Lurch in the Addams Family movies in the 90s, and amongst other things. He was also in uh, uh, Dr. Sleep here just recently, but a great actor. He's also in Gerald's Game, but he plays Gaunt, a character that when he shows up, you know, <laughs> people uh, just, they, they run from him almost like they run from uh, red eye. Because they know someone's gonna die. <laughs> yeah, because when he shows up, somebody's dead. He's only he's the mortician in town. He's only there when people, you know, when people are there to die. Yeah. And so when you see him coming, you you kind of get the fuck out of his way. Yeah, yeah. He was also in a minor cameo in Charles Band's Trophy Heads as well. That's right. He was, wasn't he? Yeah, you know, say there's always some somebody coming back from one of these movies. <laughs> but uh, you know, they do to make a mention that this is not on Earth. This is not Earth at another time. This is not Earth in another dimension. This is, you know, another pl- place. Oblivion is on another planet. And they do make a mention here Gaunt does of he mentions alt Earth and that the sheriff has the dead man hand, dead man's hand. Aces and eights. It's at the same hand that Wild Bill Hickok was rumored to have on Alt Earth, and they kind of blow it off. I think it's Miss Kitty that blows it off and says, um, "That's just a you know a rumor of a you know a, a place we don't even know if it existed or not." I, I kind of mm-hmm. like that. You know, it's very meta. Mm-hmm. But R- Red Eye comes out. He does a little saboteur thing, digs a hole, and places uh, what we will find uh, come to find out is called draconium. It's uh, everything that's everything and anything is worth money. This draconium is kind of like this world's. Uh, it's kind of this world's gold, I, I would guess. Yeah, it's like unobtainium before unobtainium existed. Unobtainium from Avatar. Oh, get it? Yeah. We need yeah. to get unobtainium. It's so hard to get. It's almost unobtainable. Oh God! You know what? I'll have to admit here. I've only seen Avatar once, and again, uh, not not a fan. You I know, this is that was uh, good enough. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. Th- this movie was probably made for that movie's cigar and coffee budget, you know. But uh, yeah, I much- mean, that's that themes like that though are very similar though of like having the very you know precious uh, resource that you know has so much power and value uh same as avatar many years before avatar existed so yep yep but red eye calls stone out he calls him out and he red eye you know not red eye but uh, marshall stone has that special badge that's supposed to protect him that creates a force field around him well of course red eye had planted something in the street that he just orchestrated things enough for Marshall Stone to stand directly over it. That was a key, uh, you know, switcheroo in for him. Mm-hmm. But but he, he got him to do it, and what does he do? With a little help from a saboteur, he shoots uh, Marshall Stone dead. Gaunt goes there and catches him before he hits the ground, and I love the exchange here as Marshall Stone's dying from his wounds. He just goes, nice catch. He's like, well, practice makes perfect, and it's <laughs> just part of the goofy dialogue of this movie that I really love. It's got a lot of witty and 
quips and one-liners that I, I love. I kind of would feel like Jack Death would have like lived well in this time. <laughs> you know, like this could have been a Jack Death timeline. And it's definitely worth stating too that you know th- there's obviously a level of camp in this movie, and some people maybe play the camp a bit heavier than others. But uh, Carl Stricken can deliver dialogue like that with the straightest face. <laughs> yes, he does it with no really no camp whatsoever. And be so dryly humorous that it that it's I mean that's not easy to do, and it's a definite art form to be able to deliver dialogue like some of Gaunt's and keep a straight face and just be stone-faced you know while you're saying really silly wink wink nudge nudge funny stuff right so, right to do it so deadpan is it's not easy I've had to do it before and I've uh, flubbed it up many a many a take I have to say that's why he was probably the you know so perfect for playing a character like Lurch because look at some of the stuff that was going on around him and he just had to basically keep a straight face. So, <laughs> right. Oh, but after the nice catch, we get our first appearance of Meg Foster as Stell Barr, and to be quite honest, it's our only appearance with with her for quite a long uh, chunk of the movie. She doesn't get to do much. She isn't much help. You know, her 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 sheriff, she's a deputy. Her sheriff gets shot dead in front of her, and she kind of just really lollygags getting her ass out there. <laughs> and they shut her down because she's a cyborg. She's, you know, but, but you know, she's, Del Barr comes out there, and like I said, she just, she's not much help. But this is when we get the uh, the appearance of probably the person who plays up the camp, only the person who plays up the camp about more if not as much if not more than julie newmar does is musetta vander is lash she's <laughs> cracking those that whip she's got some whip skills i will have to give her that as much of an over actress as she might be she, she had some impeccable fucking uh whip skills she was really really good yeah musetta vander was she's so good in both the movie and movies she's such a over the top campy but commanding talent <laughs> and she's she's you know she's tough she's got authority no one's gonna fuck with her oh exactly she's a great lash is a great character she's a great character i like though how though as ruthless as red eye is he does have limits he you know he's about ready you know to kill uh Meg Foster's character, but he won't kill Miss Kitty because she is what, quote unquote, some more of this <laughs> great dialogue, prime pussy. <laughs> and like, just come on, prime pussy, Miss Kitty, Catwoman is a little, a little, a little on the nose there, but I love it. I, it every bit of it makes me just reach yeah, for I mean, another, another handful of popcorn and just crack another smile. It's so campy. I love it. Yeah, Miss Kitty is literally just Catwoman out of the leather suit and in fancy, like, leopard print, skin-tight suits, managing yeah, that's a, a house of ill repute. <laughs> right, right. Yep, a saloon and a place of debauchery. <laughs> but again, you know, so you think right now we, we'd be done introducing, you know, stellar, you know, genre people 
in this cast, but nope, we get another me- member of Red Eye's team. Erwin Keyes is Bork, and he is he's the muscle. He's the, kind of the big, dopey Igor kind of c- character. And he's, again, just great. He would be in, what was it, Evil Bong 3? Yep, he played the killer in Evil Bong 3. And did Oblivion 1 and 2 for Full Moon. He was also in Tales of the Saddle Tramps, which ironically was shot on the same sets as Oblivion. Had a lot of the same Western sets, because let me tell you, the sets for this movie were so unique and definitely, you know, probably cost, you know, a good little penny. Their production designer was Milo, I believe. Uh, Milo did set design for a lot of the films during this era and this western set was recycled into numerous full moon movies like phantom town and uh petticoat planet i mean they shot everything from children's movies to as well as they should have those sets were really impressive they were almost its own living breathing character it's one of the many many things i love about it yeah they got their money's worth out of these sets but the, the the team is rounded out by we got Frank Roman as Wormhole, uh, kind of a mariachi type character, and then we got <laughs> Jeff Moldovan who is uh, plays Spanner, who is basically just a kind of a normal. He, he just seems to be normal human. He seems to be a normal human, just a, a regular old he, cowboy. He's literally the boring one. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like I was even gonna say, he is kind of like. He is the boring character. He he's the guy who's who's literally bored with everything that he's doing. And you know, I'll I'll say this. You know, much love to to Jeff Moldovan. He did a few full moon movies. He was did a lot of stunt coordination, and he usually appeared in the movies too. Uh, but man, he was in you know this these, and he did uh, I believe Transfers four and five, and it's just like the yep. same character. It's just a very like stale sort of like prick character who doesn't have a lot of personality, you know. He, he but, just seems to always play a, a prick that is very bored with life. Yeah, he seems very <laughs> unused about everything that he's he's a part of. Uh, but you know, maybe that that that's just his stick. He plays it well. Is that yeah? Because it's not saying that he's a bad actor. It, he just no. that's just how the character comes across. Whereas Bork, you know, Erwin Keyes' Bork is very enthusiastic and very happy with his work. Jeff Moldovan is just... Yeah, everyone's a really over-the-top character. Like, you know, Red Eye is obviously Red Eye. You know, Ash <laughs> is this over-the-top, like, you know, sexy cowgirl-like mad woman. And Wormhole is just a very over-the-top, bizarre, uh, like... I don't even know what you would call him. He has this weird sort of mariachi slash Latin-y vibe to him. Yeah, he kind of seems like somewhere between a mariachi and like a uh, a bullfighter, you know, because he's always kind of dancing around like he, like a bullfighter. It's, it's I'm not kind of kind of sure what it is. He's kind of a fifty fifty mixture there, but they're all very over the top. But With yes, a very hilarious flamboyant air too, which makes it especially hilarious. Considering that he doesn't like Nebula Boys, and uh, yeah, the Nebula Boys line, he uses that quite a few times. Nebula Boys, same as with Erwin Keys. He's just such an over-the-top, like dunce, like powerhouse 
idiot bad guy. <laughs> just the type of guy who is tough because at one point he takes two blasts that blow holes about the size of silver dollars through his back, and it really just pisses him off. Why is everyone? Why does everyone keep hurting me? Even <laughs> you hurting me. <laughs> yeah, yeah they're they're great characters. Most everybody is way over the top. Yeah, the only person, really, the the couple of people that are not over the top is uh, the next character we're getting to is Zach Stone, played by Richard Joseph Paul, the 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 son of our uh, sheriff Stone. But the poor guy is ironic that he's mining for for draconium, but all he finds is useless fucking gold. He's like, yeah, more gold. Like that's what I need. I just find it ironic that in a normal Western set on Earth. That would be what they would be prospecting for. So that's what he finds a big chunk of. But on this planet, gold is worthless. Again, just a little thing that makes me, you know, just make, makes me giggle. But then for two shows in a row, we get to talk about Jimmy Skaggs. <laughs> Jimmy Skaggs plays a much different role in here than he did in Puppet Master, which we just recently covered as Buteo. He's in quite of a pickle. He's been staked to the ground. He's held to the ground, kind of like in Gulliver's Tribals. He's tied down, and he's getting uh, attacked by these giant scorpions. But they're called night scorps, and they're just huge. And again, it's some of the which we got to mention here. Another star of this movie is the great Dave Allen. the The stop motion effects here. I think this might have been this and Oblivion Two were the last couple of movies that Dave Allen worked on. If I'm right. That is very possible, yeah, because he did not, uh, I don't believe, live much longer after the releases of these movies. Yeah, I don't think he was much long, much longer for this world after that. I think he might have passed away just a few years later. But, but the, 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 the Night Scorps work is great. Yeah, it looks phenomenal for what for what bit it's in the movie. It and the, uh, I believe he might have done, no, yeah, that, that, he did some great work on both films, though. We'll, we'll leave it at that. But uh, the night scorps are basically big, huge, giant scorpions with two stingers instead of one, and they kind of look more crab-like. They look like a like a like a lobster crab kind of uh, scorpion hybrid. But they're crazy looking. And they but kind of uh, remind me of the scorpion things at the end of the Howard the Duck film to a degree. <laughs> oh, Howard the Duck. <laughs> yeah I'm, oh gosh <laughs> sorry I have to stop and laugh at that one some fun stop motion animation at the end of that movie though all things considered so yeah yeah oh that's that's a movie I love to hate I I, I, I love to hate that movie <laughs> but yeah yeah they, they do look a little bit like that but Jimmy gets saved he, play, he plays a much more um more serene kind of character in this movie, a little less high strung than he did in uh, the previous Puppet Master. But uh, I, I, I think this is about the time when uh, Gaunt shows up and you know and uh, warns, or it might become a little bit later on when he warns that uh, Zach Stone that you know his father had passed away, or not warns him but informs him. What what I love is is Zach says, "How did you find me?" And Gaunt's like, I was looking. Yeah, he just got that <laughs> way. He's got that way about him, in a way that only Carol could like say that deadpan kind of line. Find him way out in the middle of the desert in some nondescript area. 
he was looking. <laughs> yeah, that's great. It's again the dialogue in this is so camp and over the top, but it's so low key in spots that it could only be perfect uh, people to play these roles. <laughs> but then we get the dual introduction of Jackie Swanson as Maddie Chase, our kind of uh, you know the, the lady that's running the town general store. She's a widower or a widow. And then we get Doc Valentine's. Now, I love George Takei, but he is a wonderful, comedic, sad drunk in this movie, and he is completely over the top. He is more over the top than anybody else in this movie. But I love the ad on his door that says, Parlor of Dentistry, Haircuts, Inventions, and Robotics. (laughs) It's a man of many hats. Man of many, many hats. But Red Eye is, uh, he's conspiring to take over the town. He sends uh, Wormhole to the cantina to kind of round up a, a posse. And he stays back with Lash. And they have the great exchange where they're going to get busy. And now, and Lash is a beautiful human woman. And uh, Red Eye is a reptilian creature. And, and this makeup on him is great. And it's really sold by Andrew Devoff's performance because he does little breathing tricks and teeth chatter- chattering things that makes him just a little bit inhuman. Yeah. Yeah, he's got he's got great presence and yeah, like you said, his mannerisms and some of the ways he's always like quivering his lip and you know stuff. He like kind of chattering his teeth when he would click and click his teeth after saying a sentence. It's just it's really great. He does definitely feel not not human. So, and the and the makeup effects on him are like top notch. Oh yes! Oh God, yes. The, the, you know, it seems in the picture that we shared today from the show page. You know, it was a big, beautiful close up of Red Eye's ugly, ugly le- lizard reptilian face. But it's so it's so ugly you can't stop looking at it. Yeah. And he's he's about to get down and get busy with with Lash, and and he's like. Do you want me to be gentle? And he's like, and she's just like, well, you got to be freaking kidding me. And just like that, she's like, no, I don't want you to be gentle. I want you to be rough. You know, so it's it's just a great give and take between those two. But uh, this is where I had made the note uh, right here in my notes. It was that red, the red eye makeup is pretty stellar. Yeah. But this is actually the point. I kind of got ahead of myself in, in the timeline of things were gone has the great line again only carol could say lines like this he says your father has, was met an untimely alleviations of existence i mean <laughs> uh, then again amongst others he's like saying lines over and over again like he's kicked the bucket he's bought the farm he's he's met an untimely alleviation of existence he's like what are you saying he's like he's he he's dead <laughs> <laughs> But oh, then we get Doc is just going around getting drunk, doing pretty much, you know, everything that he, he that's, that's everything he does in this movie, George Takai. And he has the, the great line, which is always kind of, uh, you know, instead, instead of saying great Scott, he says great Scotty, kind of a Star Trek kind of nod. And like I love when he's drinking, even though it's not Earth, they still have Jim Beam. I, I, yeah. I, I have questions there. Jim Beam is not only international, it's interplanetary. <laughs> the drink but, of the galaxy. 
Yeah, the drink of the galaxy where it says, Jim, beam me up. And I'm just like, nah, I see what you did there. And I love every moment of it. And, and I don't know if, you, if you'll agree with me on this one, but I found this next scene to be kind of sad and very heartbreaking. When we have the standoff between Maddie and, and drunk Doc, when he goes in and he wants to buy a bottle of booze, and he says, because they, they shut him down at the bar. And she's like, yeah, well, I see why. She's like, how about I make you some coffee? And he pulls out a gun on her and just starts crying. He's like, just give me the coffee and I want booze. Yeah. And he's going to, like, you get the feeling he's really going to shoot her. But, and it's just having that breakdown of a guy that's, you know, maybe not so much an addict, but he's having a breakdown. And she has to tell him, you know, Doc, it wasn't your fault. But he's like, yeah, I promise I protect him. And he's like, listen, you know, put the gun away. She's like, do you want the coffee or not? So he's like, you know, oh, Maddie, you know, I'm sorry if I scared you. While the whole time he's still got a gun in her face. Mm-hmm. And he's like, oh, well, the thing wasn't even loaded. And, of course, what happens, he pulls the trigger, it fires and blows out a bottle on the counter. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and he has that ridiculously over-the-top cross-eyed stare into the camera. Mm-hmm. But it's actually a very heartbreaking uh, scene to me because I felt it was, you know, like playing really, you know, hard off the idea of, of you know, the fact that Doc is an alcoholic and, you know, uh, he was at that point hitting rock bottom. It's just, you know, he rebounds from it. He rebounds from it, but it was just a sad moment there. They're both really, really good dramatically in that scene, too. Even though Doc has has his level of camp, it still feels pretty real. Yeah, him, him and Jackie Swanson are both great in this scene. But then it cuts back and forth. It does have some great editing because as it cuts back and forth, you know, that you mentioned before, like in the opening between cutting from Red Eye to Miss Kitty's saloon, it cuts back and forth between them and uh, Buteo is sticking with Zach. And this is where we get the secondary Devoff role where he's uh, played (laughs) a draconium prospector. Einstein. Einstein, yeah. And Isaac Hayes as Buster. Very odd performance. Another performance, much like Andrew DeVos, where he has a lot of weird, like, tics and, like, how he talks, you know, how he likes, he just, mm, and, ah. He seems, he's very nervous feeling. He feels like he drank all of uh, Maddie's coffee. See, and <laughs> right. I think that Isaac Hayes' performance is maybe the most understated of the, the cast personally too because i feel like like you have isaac hayes but he's not really he's not really doing a whole lot <laughs> like yeah Anna, but he's definitely memorable he's memorable but he's just plays so low-key but it's a very odd performance I'm not saying that, again that it's a bad performance it's a very just odd performance it's definitely unique so i mean yeah. there's it's not bad. It's just, it's very, it's, it's, it always feels weird to be so low key when you're around such camp. But then I guess it's probably easy to <laughs> be low key when you're around such levels of camp, too. So, right. When you have, when you're across from somebody like Andrew Devoff, who is just, again, also a very nervous character, is the, the prospect of the Einstein. You know, he's got the the watch scanner that's, uh, you know, faulty and whatnot. And he's like, 5437. It's 5437. And he's just like, well, how much does this weigh? And he's like, how much is two plus two? 5437. 
<laughs> like it's it's great. And he just takes his couple hundred bucks and just leaves. You know, it's this is great exchange, but it's just like, oh, they let him play two roles. They did kind of wish master him. Yep. But Wormhole is there trying to recruit uh, you know, <laughs> players into the team. And this is where I I, I love it because what what is the what does he offer the, the group? Tell our listeners, Dustin, what does he offer the 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 new players that they join this winning team? Well, they they get to be on the winning team and they get the uh, what was it better red than dead buttons, right? Better red than dead buttons. <laughs> they also get a company newsletter, and <laughs> they get to learn the secret handshake. <laughs> <laughs> but the best part, the better red than dead button which I used to have one. I used uh, to have one of the promotional Better Red Than Dead buttons. It's probably somewhere in a box in one of my closets uh, here stacked up in, in there, but I know <laughs> I have one. Find it. <laughs> but, uh, you know, uh, I love when uh, they sit down, Zach and uh, Buteo sit down at the bar and he's just like, hey, you want to talk to me and tell me about, you know, why you're, you're not like welcome in oblivion and why you're, you know, you've been kind of banished and why, you know, you're not, you know, welcome there. And you want to discuss it. And he's like, no, he's like, fine, I'll just keep asking until you do. Because <laughs> it's always like Mateo always has so much to say. He has he spends a hell of a long time trying to get there, but he has something always very important and very poignant to say. Yep. But uh, yeah, we learned that, uh, you know, Wormhole kind of taunts Zach. A big saloon fight ensues, and he keeps using the term he doesn't like Nebula Boys. And just. No Nebula Boys. And then he gets taken out, but he gets taken out by the, the gang of three little people that bite his legs. <laughs> yeah. There's like <laughs> random, random dwarfs, and they're getting trashed who <laughs> decide to fight back on him. Right, in the middle of this big saloon fight. And then we le- learned that, you know, Zach has this uh, aversion to violence, even though they this is the one part of the movie that I thought they took a long time to kind of really build to. But again, when they're building a universe that took place over two movies, I kind of get, get why it took to almost the midway point of the movie to get to this. But he has an aversion to violence. Yeah, I mean, and he basically tells him, he's like, you know, I don't want to shoot you, but you're standing where my gun's about to go off. Again, just another great line of dialogue. And I don't think Richard Joseph Paul, even though he gives kind of more of a straight man kind of performance, he's not really playing it overly campy. But I think his performance is also kind of understated, too. I mean, it's a good performance. He's really good in it. Yeah, he's pretty good. He's uh, he's good. And I think I think he has a. It is a bit slow, but like you said, it is, you know, something that was planned over the course of two films. So uh, it makes sense for it to kind of build up to this point because he has he has to eventually get to the point to realize that there's really no room in the Old West for a pacifist. So uh, he has to start standing his ground. Otherwise, he's going to, you know, get taken advantage of and probably get killed so yeah yeah and lose all the people that he does care about you know so he's got to make that decision he almost makes it a little too late yeah you know we might hear eventually fingers crossed all uh, god willing uh get another uh performance from him soon oh really because he In in a full moon film in a full moon film 
and Richard Joseph Paul was one of the few known credited actors to the primevals. Oh, that's right. And they have been working like crazy on that, trying to get that finished. Primeval has been slowly creeping to the, the finish line. So maybe we'll get to get another uh, full moon appearance by Richard Joseph Paul here eventually. Oh, fingers crossed. Fingers crossed. What was the next thing we got? We got Doc uh, nursing his hangover while they're trash, uh, while the gang and and Red Eye is trashing uh, <laughs> Maddie's store. I, I put it, they trash it kind of creep show two style. They're kind of stealing and taking stuff, throwing it in bags while trashing other other shit in a kind of comical way. Yeah. And post scene after Maddie runs them off with the the gun that she took from Doc that she put underneath the uh, cash register. Jeff Moldovan, as Spanner, finally gets to do something other than looking <laughs> bored. You know, he's uh, he tries coming on to Lash, but she tells him straight up, yeah, you found all the draconium, but a, a real man would have kept it for himself and not gave it up for, you know, for, for Red Eye. She's like, so until you can be a man, don't even, like, don't even try coming on to me with that weak sauce shit. Yep. But Zach finally arrives in oblivion. And nope, yep, yeah, Mike Foster's character, Stella... Uh, Stella Stella Bell is still alive in all this. She's been locked up in the cell the whole time. And she's instantly everybody really treats Zach like shit, even though I think most people know his secret. You know, and we'll just, you know, we're going to get to it eventually, but we'll get to it. But is his character is an empath. And an empath in this world is somebody that not just senses somebody else's feelings, they experience it. So if you experience great joy, he experiences great joy, but he experienced pain and death. He experiences those on some sort of level. So violence and whatnot obviously hurts him. It's almost like, uh, you know, a Corsican brother type of thing, you know? So, uh, you, you get now you you know you you understand why he's like this. It doesn't come till a little bit later in the movie, but when he arrives in oblivion, I mean, she's instantly rubbing dirt in, in Zach's wounds. I mean, it's like, hey, your father's dead, and like, let me make you feel even like a bigger piece of shit. <laughs> I think people are a little harsh on him. They are pretty tough on him, but you know, they <laughs> thankfully they eventually come around to him. Yeah, but it t- takes a little bit now. I don't know about you, and you can tell, we'll get into th- this part, and then I'm going to ask you a question. This is my favorite scene, the funeral, <laughs> the funeral for, for the <laughs> marshal, where yeah. they're having bingo during the funeral upstairs, and they're just like, it's Thursday. So as they're talking every once in a while, you know, they'll be like, B-29. And this is like, it's an uncomfortable fucking eulogy that Zach tries giving, and even when Red, Red Eye shows up with his gang and they kind of infiltrate the, the the funeral even he looks around like what the hell's going on and they're just like it's thursday and he's like oh <laughs> it's so it's so comical to have the bingo going on while they're doing the funeral my absolute favorite scene hands down of the entire fucking movie now yeah, it's, it's it's pretty it's set up pretty great honestly <laughs> now i gotta time. ask that being said, though, is what is your favorite scene in the movie? It's honestly, I don't know if I could pick a specific scene. Truthfully, the, the one that usually stands out to me, like, is this because it, because it's the bingo part with Gon just being like, 
but it's Thursday. <laughs> like, like it's one of the few things that always sticks with me. There, I think Oblivion is a movie where I think a lot of scenes don't stick with me, but it's it's character moments that stick with me. You know, like like same, Lash, same. Lash up on the the countertop, grabbing the the rails above it. You know. And when Red Eye first busts through into Miss Kitty's and stuff like that, you know, those are just kind of brief character moments that always stick with me. And Doc getting pissed at Maddie and, you know, <laughs> right. slamming his palm down on the countertop like a like a pissed child having a tantrum for his booze, you know. So then she slaps her hand on the counter right back at him and he jumps up about three feet off the ground. <laughs> yep, yep. Yeah, see, it's moment. It's m- more moments for me from this that that stand out than maybe scenes. But but the one scene that that is always probably the most <laughs> amusing on on repeats is is the funeral scene. Truthfully, yeah, I agree a hundred and ten percent. Yeah, great, great <laughs> stuff. And edited and choreographed so well. <laughs> well because there's just like, you know, there's certain moments where I can't remember the exact dialogue, but like Zach is saying something. He's like, when I was 17, and then they're like, somebody upstairs will call, I 17. And he's like, well, and before I could help my father, before, you know, and it's timed really, really well. It's some great comedic timing, and comedic writing. I, I love every moment of it. But yep, it's Thursday. That just, that always sticks with me every time. But this is where we start to get a little bit of a little bit of a banter with, you know, Red Eye and Zach. You know, he's trying to get a rise out of him. He doesn't get it. He leaves because Gaunt puts his foot down. He's like, you will cause no violence in this place. And Red Eye gives him some shit. And he he speaks up. And Gaunt is like, no, I have spoken. You will not cause violence in this place. And Red Eye steps down. (laughs) He's like screaming at him. Yeah, and when that man talks, you listen, let alone when he screams at you. Because even Red Eye is just like, okay, fair enough, I'm out. <laughs> but this is where we get a problem. Buteo scopes out Spanner uh, is wearing his family's medallion. Now, we've kind of skipped over a bit of the story between about Buteo is that he had his family had been killed, his wife, his children, all his people. They took his medallion. All he had left was a little bit of draconium and a locket around his neck. But he had seen the man that had taken it, and when he and when Buteo sees Spanner wearing his family, you know, medallion around his neck, he means business. And you know, there is a, a scene following this where uh, Stell Bar comes on to Buteo, but he's clueless. She's trying to say, "I hear your kind makes the best lovers." He's like, well, "Why? Because your stamina." And he's just like, "Ah." Uh. And he's like, and your respect to women, ah, uh, and the size of your, um, and I can't remember what she says, but it's definitely not his, uh, <laughs> I, I can't, I can't it's, it's not his unit, but I can't remember what she says. This is a comical thing because he's totally clueless. He's totally picking up what she's putting down. He has no, no interest <laughs> whatsoever. I don't think that he had no interest. I just think that he had no clue that she was even coming to, coming on to him. I don't mm-hmm. think he had, he had any game whatsoever. He didn't realize, like, oh, she's she wants some. Oh, okay. I, he's just a man on a mission. But Doc is, again, they got back to Doc. Doc is still roaming the streets, just drinking, drinking himself into uh, a stupor. But Buteo was on a mission now. And uh, you get the... 
revelation that Zach is an empath. I think it's Miss Kitty that lets lets the town know, you know, that his sad story about killing a man and that he said he felt everything that that man had felt as he was dying and he vowed that he would never hurt another person again, never kill another person. So he left town and put himself into exile. So you get a little bit more of an understanding where he's coming from. Mm-hmm. But Buteo breaks down the the Mondine creature. He corners Spanner, who's in Miss Kitty's bar, arm wrestling people, and he tells him this creature, you know, senses fear, you know, and it'll strike. It hates fear more than anything, and it'll strike whoever you know shows amount of fear to him. So they're arm wrestling, and you know, Gaunt shows up. So you know it isn't good for somebody. You know somebody's going to die. When what happens? The Mondine eats. Spanner's neck out mm-hmm. and it's a great little creature it's a great little like you know kind of like a a Ouija type creature or a ghoulies type creature it's, it's a neat little cute kind of you're frog. like monster bullfrog looking thing yeah like a lobster had hybrid bullfrog looking thing with de- demonic eyes but it's a mean little bastard I, I kind of love the, the little thing a little bit, but uh, Bork shows up and blows away our poor little, uh, you know, our poor little Monding. So that's the end of that character. So Stell is finally allowed to be useful. She's finally allowed to be useful and do something. She shoots Buteo, uh, not sorry, doesn't shoot Buteo, shoots Bork, then gets promptly shot in the back by Bork again because you just can't put Bork down. He gets shot like so many times and it's just, it's just a mighty little inconvenience for him. <laughs> you know, but uh, the remaining gang takes Buteo. Then we get our, our another great line from Doc Valentine. You know, uh, George Takai is great, Scotty. He mm-hmm. overplays the emphasis of the uh, the Star Trek references, which I heard the screenwriters did not write any of that for him. That he ad libbed all that, so they automatically said they did not do write any of it and would not take credit for any of it. Yeah. Because I think they're just like, oh, we're... we're." You kind of, I think with something like this, too, you've got, like, a cast of, you know, cult stars who are very much synonymous with specific types of roles or characters, so you're kind of kind of get some of that bleeding in in one fashion or another. So some things they leaned into it more, I think, with, like, hiring Julie Newmar to play a you know, feline-ish type of character, but then Doc just sort of, you know, worked some of his own Star Trek references in, I guess. <laughs> but it's great, though. I love anything with George Takai, so I'm I'm all for it. I'm I'm here. You know, it's cheesy, but I'm here for the cheese. That's the way I look at it. That anyway, we get we get to where Red Eye is holding court on Buteo. He's going to have him. He's going to have him whipped. And they start, uh, Lash starts whipping him in the streets. And then uh, Matter, you know, tries to stop what's going on, you know, because they shoot, uh, when they shoot and take out uh, Stell, he has another line where he, he kind of paraphrases Bones from Star Trek when he does, I'm a doctor, not a damn musician. Or magician, sorry. Well, he's not a musician either. There are, there's only room for so many magicians in the full moon universe. <laughs> <laughs> and that was the last movie. There were several of them, right? <laughs> there were at least about four or five of them. Yeah. <laughs> you just, no, dude, I, I just think you don't understand the metaphysics of it. 
is what I think. Definitely not. <laughs> I think it's it's pretty like I don't wouldn't maybe use the word shocking, but it is a bit of a surprise when Zach shows up and just starts, you know, killing everybody, shooting everybody, but he's using that uh that that uh that star that uh, he got from his dad that has a protective force field around him. So I think that's, you know, it was, it was a neat little ploy. You know, I mean, he starts shooting, he boom, he fucking kills wormhole dead on and takes off red eyes arm. Now for a movie that's PG 13, there's a decent amount of blood and gore in this. I'm really kind of surprised, you know, at the, the gore of the, the gunshots and the blood that's in it, that they were able to get away with for a PG 13 movie. Truthfully, when the marshal gets shot at the beginning, it's a, surprisingly bloody bullet wound <laughs> like pops uh, yeah the, the mondane gets killed when it gets shot it like pops and there's like a you know a good amount of gore when it flops over dead as well yeah for you know, pg-13 it, it it brings the blood and one of the few Few, few PG-13 movies under the actual full moon banner, so. Oh, right, really, yeah. I'm going to say that not, they would keep most of their PG-13 stuff to the moonbeam banner. <laughs> but, it, I mean, it plays, a, uh, I mean, it plays like, a, at this point, it kind of plays almost like a Walter Hill movie. Like, everything goes to slow-mo, the bullet squibs are big, bloody, and beautiful, and it's just, some long, drawn-out, slow-motion, kind of like John Woo, Walter Hill-type stuff, and it's really pretty good. It, it plays off pretty well. The action is pretty good. But Maddie, in the middle of all of it, gets uh, kidnapped, and after this, I just wrote, damn, Red Eye grows another new fucking arm. It's <laughs> really pretty gross. Even, like, Erwin Key is watching it as he, sta- as he is in there... You know, Red Eye starts screaming. He's like, oh, it looks like it hurts, Doc. He's like, no, you're standing on my foot. <laughs> and if that big guy was standing on your foot you'd be screaming too i think even if you had an arm off I, i'm just saying yeah, but when they when they decide to go out to the badlands and you know they're going to go and try to save uh, miss kitty not miss kitty sorry they're going to save maddie and they he gives them the whole speech and does the who's with me and everybody just kind of bolts from the room <laughs> And it's just like, yeah, that's that, that's usually how it goes. Everybody will cheer you on, but if the, the, it's going to be marching into battle, you're usually going to be the only one there. I love when it c- comes together here at the end, because it kind of does wrap itself up really nicely. I mean, you know, Red Eye's hiding, hiding out in the Badlands. He's got Lash and uh, Bork with him. So you got Belle. She's got unfinished b- business with, uh, with Bork. Gaunt's there. And in the middle of the shootout, everybody's fighting. You got, you know, Bell fighting against Bork, Lash, you know, fighting against uh, Zack and Red Eye all fighting against each other, shooting. He's literally playing solitaire, like on a big boulder, just slapping out cards, just waiting for somebody to die. I, uh-huh. Again, so low key, but I, I, I think Gaunt kind of gets the MVP award here. <laughs> Gaunt is probably of everyone my favorite character in in this first movie, truthfully. <laughs> but I love like you know she, she she burns him, she shoots him, she shocks him. He's just so tired of getting hurt. He's like, why is everybody hurting me? <laughs> and 
with one whip, you know, Lash takes a, a an aim to take take out one of the, our our heroes, and she ends up whipping Bork instead. And here he is with his toasted, smoking hair, his scorched face. He's been shot up and he's bleeding, and he just starts chasing her. He's like, you know, like why is everybody hurting me? Even you hurt me. Yeah, yeah, that's funny because he just—it's like he doesn't understand why everyone's trying to like come down on him like that, and it's like you're a bad guy, dude. <laughs> yeah, uh, I don't think he gets it, but that's the beauty of his character. He's kind of like Curly from the Three Stooges. He's just a wee bit simple and a whole lot tough. But I, I like how uh, in the fight with uh, Zach and Red Eye that he takes that star. And jams it into Red Eye's one good eye, and then drops him over the side of the the cliff to the Night Scorpions. And the Night Scorpions, it, it does go to show you again. It's a little comical and over the top. Is kind of the one time Zach gets to be a little over top when he's experiencing the pain as the Night Scorpions are literally tearing Dead Eye or not Dead Eye, but Red Eye to pieces, just tearing him in half, and. You know, uh, I uh, what's the line uh, that the very kind of last line that Gaunt has when Zach says something to them of the effect after they've saved Maddie, they've killed Red Eye. He's like, I thought you were only into death and, and uh, you know, burying people. And he's like, well, there's always bingo. Bring it full circle. Yep. The bring it yeah, back full circle to that funeral scene. I think in the history of everything, it's the only the only outing where, you know, Full Moon did a lot of multi-picture shoots like that. You know, obviously, Trancers 4 and 5 was another one. Uh, they used to do it, not necessarily with films in the same franchise, per se, but whenever they would send uh, Dave Dakota out to Romania, he would usually be doing two movies back-to-back. You know, they would... Mm-hmm. They, be in the same franchise but he'd do two movies within you know like a week or two <laughs> you know so for full moon living probably one of the highest concept things that full moon ever did during the paramount era it's definitely one of the largest i mean you got to consider when they would do these romanian shoots you know you would usually end up with one or two sometimes three american actors that would be the actual imports that they would fly out with you know the crew like oblivion almost the entire cast is like american stars that had to be flown out for that so if they wanted to do a sequel it just made sense to just go ahead and do do get two movies you know get some more bang for the buck and just get two of them i guess you know and that might have been the the idea so because that's a lot of money just went into travel and accommodations because oh yeah to get all those american actors out to uh romania i got it couldn't have been it couldn't have been cheap even in the 90s not at all because a lot of the the usual players and what i mean by, by that is the the romanian um day players <laughs> play most of the, the the side no name like you know cowboys and gunslingers in this and actually really didn't have parts in in these movies per se because they actually had like 
real actors there doing it. So thankfully, everyone can actually speak English. So there's no there's no one delivering dialogue phonetically and sounding like they have no concept of what they're saying. So like <laughs> the Romanian shot full moon movies. So you know these actually feel like authentically you know acted big big films honestly like oblivion for what it's worth it feels like a big film and it was you know it's had a good script it's got had a really skilled director and it's like i said it's got one of the greatest casts i think film ever had oh yeah without a doubt if, if anything the 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 biggest cavalcade of like you know what i mean genre veterans in this movie but that being said Let's go ahead and do our final thoughts and review. And you know how we do around here. Uh, guests go first. So rating on a scale from one to ten. Definitely. You know, uh, Full Moon came out of the gate with, you know, a, a powerful film with Puppet Master. And they, they left that Paramount gate with Oblivion. And Oblivion is a, it's a strong film. I think if you like sci-fi, if you like comedy, you know, you like lighthearted fare. Because this isn't. It isn't suspenseful per se, or it's not mean spirited. It's not R rated, you know, like we said, it's a PG 13 film. So it's, it's acceptable for pretty much any viewers aside from some of the, you know, the gore elements. It's pretty, it's pretty light viewing fare and pretty digestible, I think for general audiences. Yeah. I mean, it, it could almost be, I mean, almost, almost be a moonbeam film. Totally. And it, it had a nice little, you know, festival run at the time. Uh, and I think it was pretty successful for them, honestly. Uh, it's a really slickly made film. I think it's probably production wise. I think it's one of the slickest movies that came out of that Paramount era. It might not always be my go to film because I'm obviously going to lean more towards horror. You know, you and I have discussed in the past that, you know, growing up, some of the things that were lower on the scale for me and not because they were bad movies but they were lower on the scale for me of full moon fair with stuff like you know mandroid and invisible dr mordred that kind of stuff because they weren't outright horror they were taking fantasy or sci-fi elements like robot wars and that kind of thing you know they're, they're things i right, to right. look at new eyes look at with new eyes and i can have a better appreciation for them so even though Oblivion is probably not always going to be my directly go-to film to watch if I were asked, hey, what full moon movie do you want to watch? But it is a damn good movie. It's thoroughly entertaining, very well acted, solid script. You know, it's script by uh, Peter David, you know, who went on to be quite successful in TV, I believe. Uh, with like X Files and stuff, yeah. um, and you know, directed by Sam Irvin, who had already had some pretty good Moonbeam success with Magic Island. Just as busy today. I mean, you know, he's constantly working. Uh, well, I think he has between what forty-five and fifty feature films. Yeah, he's been working pretty steadily for uh, cable TV directing, uh, like Lifetime thrillers and that kind of stuff. So, you know, I'll, I'll say that I think probably the only unoriginal thing about this movie is the tagline, 
was, you know, it's, you know, in the year 3031, it's cowboys and aliens. Cause I want and at one point, I believe the, there was another tagline where it said it's high noon at the end of the universe. See, that's what's on, on the, the DVD that I have. Those are those, at the end of, I like that one a little better. Those were things, especially high noon at the end of the universe that came from metal storm. So those, those things are kind of already, you know, used, but this movie was a precursor to bigger budget studio stuff like cowboys and aliens where you know the studio system tried to just basically make something you know similar with daniel craig and yeah, call it oh, Cow- the, yeah the one with harrison ford yeah I, I i saw that movie and while it was you know it was fun but it's not i mean it goes to prove that you can have a hundred million dollar budget it doesn't mean that your movie's going to be better i I think oblivion and oblivion 2 for that matter are much better than uh cowboys and aliens i mean 19 years after oblivion 1 was released this studio system made a sci-fi action film called oblivion starring tom cruise (laughs) yep that is fun as Sam Irvin's Oblivion. Like, this is just a fun, genuinely entertaining, lighthearted, amusing view. Uh, it never gets old. I always love it. It's got some top-notch stop-motion with by Dave Allen. It's got some great practical effects from Alchemy Effects and Mark Rappaport. Uh, great music, too, for the record, by Pino DiNaggio. So it's just all around great stuff. For me, this movie is a solid eight. I'm coming in, and once again, we're coming in fairly close. Uh, I'm coming in at an eight and a half. Uh, I, I, I love this series. I mean, it's, again, it's only two films, but it, it's, it's a lot of fun. It's expertly directed. It's well edited. And the acting is very, you know, is I'm going to preface this by saying this is a good thing. The acting is all over the place, but everybody plays their roles very well. Like, you know, Jackie Swanson is Maddie and Richard Joseph Paul is Zach. You know, they play their characters very straight edged and very dramatic and whatnot. But then you got people like Isaac Hayes, Julie Newmar, George Takai, you know, all playing a very you know, very campy and over the top. And most of it is very campy and over the top, but it's a lot of fun. And I think it's like you said, it's extremely accessible for everybody. You know, this is the type of movie you could sit and watch like something like from the Star Trek series or something from Star Wars and watch with your kids or watch with grandma and grandpa. And there's a little bit of something I think that everybody can enjoy in this movie. And you could tell they pumped a lot of that that full moon pumped a lot of that uh, Paramount money into here because of the cast. I mean, we've already talked about it, but you know, Andrew Devoff, Meg Foster, Isaac Hayes, Julie Newmar, Carol Strigan, George Takai, Jimmy Skaggs, Irwin Keys. I mean, the list goes on and on. It's a, it's just a who's who of of this time era, and you know the fact that. Peter David and Sam Irvin, the the writer and then the director of this movie, both had like you know little cameos in it, which I kind of like. And, you know, it was like it's the it's kind of playing the uh, the, you know, the Alfred Hitchcock kind of thing. You know, it's like 
pick them out, pick them out of the lineup. I like that. But yeah, solid eight and a half. Uh, I can't wait to do the second one. Um, you know, we, we have a lot of time on our ha- hands. You know, we, we got a lot of movies to review, but I, I can't wait to do that one with you. Uh, I love these movies. I've been waiting to, to pick, pick to do, waiting to pick this one to do uh, since we started. This was always on the short list of stuff I wanted to do, but can't do all the favors so close to each other. Got to space them out a little bit, you know? <laughs> It's, yeah, no, it's, it's a great film, and you know, it's it just it's always fun to go back and you know revisit you know older comfort food like this, and, you know, and it just reminds you too, like man, it was just like a lifetime ago. I remember picking this tape up and just you know being transported to you know kooky alien planet, you know, <laughs> no. Do and, they ever? Know, one thing I gotta ask: they never do say what the name of the planet is, do they? Uh, not to my knowledge, no. Oh, that's yeah. probably a good thing. Earth 2.0, we'll call it. So, you know, <laughs> I don't mind too that it is just that it's been that long, because this is another one much like, you know, uh, the last one that we did. There's, you know, a good handful of these people. Shockingly, not the ones you'd think, but a good handful of these people aren't even with us anymore, like Isaac Hayes and... Uh, well, Jimmy Skaggs is no longer with us. Jeff Moldovan are all no longer here. So, you know. Yeah, that's sad when you think about it. You know, when you think of these movies are almost 30. God, I mean, it's almost 30 years old. You know, it's coming up on it. You know, when this came out, I was, God, I was 17, 18. (laughs) And I still remember being so excited when I got it. I remember, like, scoping out at the local video store the mom and pop place where I would rent my movies from. And you would, you would, you were able to, you know, bid on the posters they had hanging on the walls. They would take bids. Yeah. Yeah, I I bid for this poster. Like, I can't remember what I ended up paying for it, but they had like little like uh, auctions. that would have people come in and you you could bid on the posters. I won this poster and believe it or not, I still have it rolled up in a poster tube in my closet. I haven't got it framed because I have hundreds of posters and let's face it, there's even if I had a 17 room mansion, there wouldn't be enough wall space for me to put all those posters up. But I still have this poster. Same, you know, I worked within the theater system for a good number of years. And as a as a young movie renter, used to get posters from the video stores all the time. And I have legitimately hundreds of (laughs) posters i have tons of full moon posters and you know i have my full moon you know appreciation album on facebook you know where i post images of you know my memorabilia and film collection and some of the only things that i posters up all my full moon posters because they're just i don't i'm not someone who hangs posters necessarily i used to but i don't really anymore um but they're buried in boxes somewhere <laughs> and i i couldn't begin to guess where but i know i have an oblivion poster somewhere i even have a magic island poster somewhere <laughs> so oh, if anybody would you would have it sir <laughs> a lot of that stuff so um you know at a previous event i was just at recently as a guest uh, a filmmaker friend bought me a doll man versus demonic toys poster so oh I, jealous sir i uh 
I love my full moon posters, but I don't have them. I'm a bad fan and that I don't have them displayed and I don't really have uh, any uploads of, of that part of my collection, but I do have a good, good little wealth of full moon posters somewhere. Maybe one day you'll be in a position where you'll be able to frame some of them. Because framing the, the the cost on some of those frames are almost as much as the posters themselves. And that's one of the main reasons why I never bothered to do so is, is it can be so costly to display posters. Uh, and even just to sell them, if you were to take them and try and, you know, market them and sell them at events or online and stuff, you know, that's a lot of time and money just to do that. So I just, you know, they're rolled in boxes, you know? Yeah, most of mine are either folded up in boxes, filed away, or stuck in poster tubes, filed away. Depending on what the poster is, I've had people, you know, come by, you know, I've worked with people on films and they come by the house and they're looking through them and I'm like, eh, you see anything you want, just take it. (laughs) Show me as long as I give it the thumbs up, you know, cool. And keep your hands off my doll man versus demonic toys poster, right? Those those will go nowhere, the full moon posters and some others. But yeah, I've I've given actors on some of my films, actors and actresses posters. But, and I'm like, sure, you know, it's that much less stuff. <laughs> so, <laughs> so much stuff, so little space to put it all in, right? Absolutely not using them, so sure. <laughs> right on, right on. Well, I hope you find that Oblivion poster one day. Maybe I'll actually find mine and hang it. I'm not, I'm not sure. It's probably in some pretty bad shape by now, I'm sure. Because it was uh, well used and well uh, abused by the time I got it back then. But it went in a poster tube, and that's where it's set. I should protect I'm, it. My, I know Sam is supposed to be at an event down here in Florida later this year. I should find them and go take them and get them signed. You definitely should. <laughs> and if you do go to that event, let me know. I will find my po- my Oblivion poster and send it to you to have you s- have them get a sign for me. Probably be one of the only people on the planet with an autographed Magic Island poster at that point. <laughs> <laughs> Magic Island, for the record, is actually a, a high point for Moonbeam. It is it is a really fun special effects Latin kids adventure. It's really fun. I, I would actually highly recommend it. Nice. With that being said, we'll call this an end to the evening. We have been talking about Oblivion from 1994. Remember, it's better red than dead, folks. But folks, don't tune out yet because the festivities are not quite over. We have a very special interview with Oblivion's director, Mr. Sam Irvin, following in just a few seconds. While although these two segments were recorded many months apart, we felt it would be worth its weight in Draconium to wait just a little longer to join them together in one episode. Now please enjoy my one-on-one interview with filmmaker, author, writer, director, producer, and film lover, Mr. Sam Irvin. Mr. God. You're the only one who's ever happy to see me. Everyone is dead when they see you. Have you ever considered the possibility, Mr. Gaunt, that people don't welcome you because you scare the shit out of them? I mean, when you show up, people die. It's not cause and effect, Marshall. I simply have a knack for being in the right place at the right time. 
Alrighty, folks, and welcome to another edition of Cinema Degenerations Howling at the Full Moon, where we celebrate everything and anything Charlie's Band related. We have a special treat for you this afternoon. We have a special interview with the director of Oblivion and Oblivion 2, Mr. Sam Irvin. Welcome to the show. Hey, Cameron. Thanks so much for having me. I appreciate it. Uh, <laughs> and, and also, I did a third film for Charlie Band uh, called Magic Island for the Moonbeam label. Yeah, yeah, for Moonbeam. I have a copy of that on on Laserdisc of all things. <laughs> <laughs> you and three other people. <laughs> right. Yeah, I'm, I'm me, one of my the, mother uh, and my husband. <laughs> I'm one of like four people left in the world that still collects Laserdisc for some odd reason. But we'll, <laughs> that's, a, that's a, a, a topic for another show. <laughs> <laughs> that's fabulous. Uh, but I want to, first, I want to welcome you to the show uh, and, and thank you again. I know you're such a busy man and directing you know, left and right and between projects. So I appreciate you taking the time out of your busy schedule to do this. Oh, my pleasure. Any, anytime I can talk about the Oblivion movies, I am so game. Uh, they were such a treat to make. Uh, and there's still a treat to watch. Uh, I, I swear, I, I, I never get tired of watching them. But I do want to talk a little bit about the early beginnings of your career because I'm I'm a bit of a you know I'm using air quotes here that you can't see a fledgling filmmaker I I, I dabble a bit in directing I, I'm pretty much just a writer these days and sometimes actor but I want to uh, talk a little bit about your beginning in your of your career in films you know uh, you started out working with Brian De Palma of all people you know that like yeah. what was that like. Yeah, it was a pretty pretty amazing in, entree into the industry. I um, I was going to the University of South Carolina um, studying film, and I was a huge. Th this was back in 1975. I was a huge fan of Brian De Palma's early films, Fan of the Paradise, Sisters, and I decided to organize a film festival in his honor. He had made um, Obsession, but it hadn't come out yet. And he was in pre-production on Carrie. And I found in the trade journals a uh, listing in, for pre-production of Carrie. And it listed a casting office and gave the phone number. <laughs> so <laughs> I cold called it in Los Angeles and they put him right on the phone. <laughs> and, <laughs> It would never happen today. Now, this was a pretty famous uh, casting session going on because Brian De Palma and George Lucas were sitting together at a table reading every young actor in town for Star Wars and Carrie. Literally, everyone who came in the room read scenes for both movies. I mean, it's probably the most historic casting sessions ever. But um, anyway, he was on a break. I'm on the phone. I explained what I was, what we were doing, and. Uh, he said, listen, I live in New York. I, I, um, if you, I need some stuff at my apartment. If you can give me the airfare from L.A. to South Carolina, then to New York for the weekend and back to L.A., I'll come for the Triangle Airfare. And I said, done. We, and we had a budget and everything for, you know, to do these things uh, at school. So he came out. That's how I met him, took him to my film class. He drew storyboards on the chalkboard and he brought a cassette player that, where he played us these brand new cues that Bernard Herman had literally just recorded for Obsession. 
the first time anybody had ever heard them. And this was a month before Bernard Herrmann died. Brian had recommended to Martin Scorsese that he use um, Bernard Herrmann to score Taxi Driver. And right at that very moment when De Palma was, was there in South Carolina in November of 75, um, Bernard Herrmann was, was uh, recording or, you know, doing the score for Taxi Driver. And a month later, just before Christmas, he ended up passing away right after, just hours after the last session of the Taxi Driver score. But, but when I met Brian, he was talking up about how, oh, and, and Bernie's going to be doing the score for Carrie. And, you know, so he was all excited about getting a third film scored by Bernard Herman, because, of course, Kerman had done Sisters and then Obsession, this, this new one that he was playing for us. And um, so it was kind of sad a month later that, uh, I mean, it was very sad because Bernard Herman is the greatest film composer of all time from Psycho to... You know, Bernard Herrmann's first film is a little thing called Citizen Kane. You know, I mean, he's such a legend. <laughs> Just a little such film, a right? Legend, Jesus. Um, but anyway, that was pretty amazing. And so, anyway, that's how I met him. And then uh, I got a long, I can do the long version if you want. Uh, <laughs> the, a funny thing happened. Uh, we had a midnight show of Phantom of the Paradise. We told everybody to come in costume, and Brian was going to judge the best costume, and we had prizes. We sold out our campus theater, 300 seats. It was midnight. We uh, do, you know, everyone's pumped. Uh, we give out the prizes, and then we start the movie, and the, that, if you're familiar with Phantom of the Paradise, the first oh, yes. image is is the the dead bird, the Death Records logo starts to rotate on the screen and there's no sound. I jumped up out of my seat and ran up to the projection booth and found out that the 16 millimeter projector, the audio bulb, the, the, um, the soundtrack bulb had burned out. Oh, <laughs> and no. they're supposed to have extras on hand and they didn't and it was too late at night to go buy one and it's not the kind of thing you can find at you know the 24-hour 7-eleven so <laughs> we had to cancel the screening send everyone home refund their money oh my god i thought all the goodwill that i've built up with De Palma just got flushed down the drain well this will tell you what he's like he thought it was hilarious and that just shows you his you know sardonic, sardonic sense of humor and um and later you know i ended up getting hired to be his assistant and everything else and he loved to tell that story every time he introduced me to somebody he would tell that story and <laughs> just to embarrass me <laughs> and, uh, but anyway that's that's how it all started i um between my junior and senior year in the summer of 78 no sorry uh, summer of 77 i worked on the fury the film he did uh with kirk douglas and john cassavetes and that was shot in Chicago. And then when I was graduating in the spring of 78, he called me and said, I'm doing a low budget comedy called Home Movies. Do you want to come up? I know you're graduating. Do you want to come up and work on it? And I said, uh, do birds fly? And 
I uh, took my last exam, didn't even stay for my graduation ceremony. I just hopped on a plane and went up and I thought I was going to be a production assistant like I'd been on The Fury. And he told me, no, you're going to be the production manager and the associate producer. <laughs> and so he kind of threw me in the deep end to see if I could swim. And apparently I swam OK. And then he hired me full time as his assistant and, and his production company and development and everything. And I worked on dress to kill and um blow out and you know it was it was fantastic just it, it you know i went to film school at the university of south carolina technically but my real film school was was working with de palma and being in on the ground floor of seeing him you know storyboard and develop each of his films and he was very much like hitchcock and he would prep everything really thoroughly and, you know, by the time you got to shooting, it was just basically going through the motions of executing all the, the great plans you'd laid. And that's, you know, the, that's how I'm trained as a director and it's what I do. So, um, you know, every, every day that I work as a director and I've now directed, I just finished directing my 47th movie. Um, there's not a moment that I'm not thinking about what I learned from De Palma. So it was, it was pretty, a pretty amazing experience. And I was I would, very lucky that it happened so early in my career, you know, so. I would say great. that was one hell of a film school, you know, getting, uh, yeah, you know, it you really know trained was. by somebody like De Palma. That's a hell of a film school. Yeah, it, now, it was an amazing thing. Did eight-year-old Sam Mervin know when he went uh, to that? I've, I've done a little bit of studying up on you. Aha! Uh -huh. Did eight-year-old so. <laughs> Samuel Irvin know when he went and visited uh, and toured around Warner Brothers Studios that that was going to be such, you know, a life-changing yeah. moment? Yeah, it was a totally life-changing moment. I grew up in Asheville, North Carolina. My dad owned movie theaters. So movie theaters were my playground. This was back in the days long before home entertainment, long before video, long before anything. So, you know, if you wanted to see a movie, you had to see it in the theater and then you had to wait for it to maybe come on TV at some point. And back then there were only three networks and, you know, they ran movies occasionally, but it was mostly TV, regular TV series. And you could maybe catch a movie on late night TV. I mean, it was hard to really see films and especially you see them multiple times, your favorite ones. So, you know, by by growing up in movie theaters, I could get in free. I could see them multiple times. And I did. I mean, I was just there all the time. And uh, when I was eight, my dad um, took our family on a cross-country road trip to California to go to Disneyland and, you know, do all the sites. And one of the things that he arranged was a VIP tour at Warner Brothers. And because he was in the exhibition business, um, he was able to get, you know, it wasn't just a regular, you know, tourist tour. It was a, it was a VIP tour. And we walked onto the set of Blake Edwards' The Great Race while they were shooting this giant, in a giant tank, a, um, an iceberg scene with the antique cars on the iceberg. And, uh, and there was Natalie Wood and Jack Lemmon and Tony Curtis and Peter Fox on the ice, wow. on the iceberg. They were creating waves and a storm scene with rain and snow and wind machines. And the, literally the eyes just, my eyes just popped right out of my head. And 
I could not believe what I was seeing. I just thought if they were going to shoot a storm on an iceberg, that they would have to go to the North Pole and wait for a storm. And, you know, <laughs> I had no idea that this stuff was created on a soundstage or could even be created on the soundstage. It was incredible. And then they took us to another stage where they were shooting um, Professor Fate's uh, lair, the exterior of the, it looked like the Adams Family House. It was this really, um, really spooky kind of mansion up on a hill. And, but it was a model. It was, it was maybe six feet high. You know, it was a large model, but it, and it was up on this hill in built on the stage. And at the foot of the hill in the foreground was a full size gate and sidewalk and wall in front of it. And they had a, um, a Bobby police, you know, a policeman um, extra that was walking by to sort of give it scale. And they were trying to explain to me this concept of forced perspective where, you know, it, the mansion will look full size because in the foreground we have all the full size gates and the person walking by and everything else. And I'm looking at it and going, no, it won't. that looks like a six foot <laughs> tall model of a house. That's never going to work. Well, of course, when I saw the film, it totally worked. And so it, the whole day was like, you know, a magician revealing all of his, how he, how he did his tricks. And, the other thing we did was we went uh, to another stage where they were shooting uh, Two on a Guillotine, which was a thriller that originally had been actually developed for Vincent Price, but he was on contract with AIP and, and they couldn't work out a loan out or whatever. And so Cesar Romero plays the sort of Vincent Price kind of role. And Dean Jones and Connie Stevens are kind of the romantic leads. And what, um, what I saw, they were shooting this gondola that uh, there a ride that actually existed in Santa Monica that went way out over the water and came back on the pier and but on the soundstage they had taken one of these gondolas and sawed it in half and put a rear screen projection behind it and had Dean Jones and Connie Stevens sitting inside it and um, you know again I had no concept of, you know, rear screen projection up to this time. You know, again, I was just like blown away at the whole idea of it. And then after they shot the scene, the director came over and said and asked me to sit in the gondola. And he had the, the set photographer take pictures of me. And he said, I have a small part for a kid. It's going to shoot next Wednesday. Would you be interested? And my and I said, yes. And my parents come over and go, uh, no, on next Wednesday, we're supposed to be at the Grand Canyon and that will not be happening. And um, I never forgave them for it because my, you know, Hollywood career, you know, crashed and burned before it even got started. Um, it turns out that the director was William Conrad, the actor who, the rather rotund actor who later went on to Cannes and series and other stuff. And yeah, um, yeah. But at any rate, uh, yeah, it was just the whole day was just crazy. And after that day, I was like, I am going to there's nothing I want in the world more than to direct movies. And my dad had an eight millimeter home movie camera. I just took it out of his hand and never gave it back and just started making little horror films uh, with my brother. And he would I get my brother to play Dracula with a black 
beach towel as a cape and lots of, you know, <laughs> ketchup and plastic bangs. And I got a coffin that um, they had on display at a used car dealer in the back of a hearse. It was just the, the you know, the, the just a plywood, you know, coffin that that's angular shaped and uh, flat on top and hinged. And I kept it as a like a coffee table or coffin a table <laughs> in my bedroom, and would store all my collection of famous monsters of Filmland in it. And when I wasn't, uh, you know, using it for one of my eight millimeter movies, so um, yeah, I had kind of a reputation of being like the Charles Adams kid at school, the the weirdo with the coffin in his room. And uh, so yeah, that was my childhood. But I definitely, I always wanted to direct from the age of eight, and it just was in my, you know, under my skin, and I, that's just what I had to do, and I was going to do it no matter what. Oh, that's amazing. It says your, your childhood doesn't sound much unlike mine with, without the, you know, the being on the film set and visiting the studio. Yeah. But I was I was always known as that that weird kid that that likely had a coffin in his room at one point. <laughs> yes, exactly. Well, I don't. Uh, I I am going to throw in a quick plug. Um, I haven't even announced this yet on my social media or anything. So you're getting a little bit of a scoop here. Um, ah. I am publishing my childhood memoir um, of my ch crazy childhood and teen years. Uh, and it's called I Was a Teenage Monster Hunter, How I Met Vincent Price, Christopher Lee, Peter Cushing, and more. And it's part memoir and it's part collection of 35 interviews I did with, with all the horror royalty back in the 70s when I was in my teens because I, I, I edited and published my own fanzine called Bizarre. And I got, as a high school graduation gift, I got my parents to send me to England, where I interviewed Christopher Lee on the set of The Man with the Golden Gun and spent the day with him. I interviewed Peter Cushing. I got to be very good friends with Ingrid Pitt, and she had me be her um, aide-de-camp at the famous Monsters Convention in 1975, which, by the way, was three days before De Palma came to my school, and I had to rush back from New York <laughs> from that convention, having spent the weekend with Peter Cushing and Ingrid Pitt and, and the head of Hammer Films, Michael Carreras, and Barbara Lee, who they had presented as the new Vampirella on a film that never got made. And, you know, literally rushed back to, to South Carolina three days later to meet De Palma. And I was 19 at the time. And um, from and so the book literally goes up to the famous Monsters Convention. And my second book, which will be down the road, will be my De Palma years. <laughs> but this first this first one covers all the craziness up until that time. And by the way, I became very, very good friends with Vincent Price. And so I go into all of that. And uh, anyway, it's it's pretty, pretty wild and crazy. Um, the book is coming out. Um, I'm hoping by the end of September might end up getting delayed until sometime in October. I hope not. But um, it will be available on Amazon. And I'm also doing an audio book of it and start recording that on Tuesday. And I'm just really, really excited about it. It's a major 
major, uh, gigantic book. It's about 350 pages. It's eight and a half by 11 format. It's got hundreds of pictures. It's all color throughout the whole thing. I have all these cartoons. This great cartoonist, Dan Gallagher, has he's doing the cover. He's kind of a Jack Davis style um, artist. And um, he's got, you know, 20 some odd full color, full page cartoon depictions of some of the funnier episodes of my life. So it's a pretty lavish um, kind of almost coffee table book. And and as I say, memoir slash collection of these 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 time capsule interviews that are just amazing because I, I did these things in 1974 uh, and 1975. And most of these people were still, at, you know, in at the height of their careers. I mean, Peter Cushing was six months away from from doing Star Wars, you know, I mean, they were still in the thick of it. It wasn't like, ta- you know, interviewing them 20 years later when their stories right, were all right. over rehearsed and homogenized and you know, and back then they weren't always politically correct and they were just, you know, they were being asked things for the very first time. And so these interviews are great. I mean, Diana Rigg, uh, oh my God, I and I interviewed Jane Seymour and uh, Donald Pleasance. I mean, everybody, it was just, anyway, it's an, it's, it's an exciting book and I can, I can be a salesman because guess what? I'm not Make, I'm not going to make one dime off of it. I'm donating 100% every penny of the profits to the Trevor Project, which is an LGBTQ youth um, nonprofit that supports LGBTQ youth with suicide hotlines nice, and nice. legal assistance and health care and, uh, you know, all kinds of advocacy. Um, and and Cassandra Peterson, Elvira, has written the foreword to the book, and it's also a charity that's very close to her heart and that she um, raises money for as well. So we're all, you know, I can shamelessly promote it because it's not to make money for me, it's to make money for this charity. And um, so anyway, it's called I Was a Teenage Monster Hunter. You won't be able to find it yet. It will be listed on Amazon as soon as it comes out but be looking for that. Um, and I, and I know you'll enjoy it. You're going to oh, want to be looking both. for it. I'll definitely be looking you're, for it. You've already you're sold gonna get both, And you're going to want to get both the book and the audiobook because you'll want to hear me tell you this wild and crazy story. While at the same time, uh, the book will have all these great pictures that, you know, the visual aid. So you gotta, you gotta do it. And, um, so anyway, enough for the plug. <laughs> well, from, from Bazaar Magazine to this, that, that's one hell of a transition, sir. Yeah, yeah. It, it's, it's, it's kind of an extension of that for sure. And, and anybody who was that close, I, I, I've seen some of your interviews and read some of your stories. I know you were very close to uh, Vincent Price. And we here at uh, the Cinema Degeneration just did a whole month dedicated which was not nearly enough time <laughs> we, no, covered, not, we covered not at all. you know we covered 10 films in in four weeks you know and i feel like well, that was just a drop in a bucket but we tried to pick the 10 best yeah well he the yeah i directed elvira's haunted hills the second elvira movie which was a spoof of the vincent price edgar Allan poe roger corman movies like bit the pendulum and house of usher and all of those and we dedicate the film to Vincent because Cassandra and I both were very good friends with him and knew him well. And he was so near and dear to our hearts. 
one of the very first films, horror films that I ever saw as a kid that just blew me away was Pit and the Pendulum. We have our own Pit and the Pendulum in the movie. I mean, it was, you know, it was just a full circle dream come true. And for Cassandra, the first horror film she ever saw was House on Haunted Hill. So we both were, you know, had these seminal childhood freakouts over Vincent Price. And, uh, and, you know, it just never, never left us. Yeah, it's, uh, I was introduced uh, to Vincent Price by by way of House on Haunted Hill and The Fly back in the day. Yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, I think my uh, my ultimate favorite, and this is kind of getting off track here a little bit, but is Madhouse. I, I think Madhouse does not get uh, enough great. love. It's a great, it's, great I love film. Madhouse, too. No, it's a good one. And, uh, I mean, you know, when you read my book... Uh, <laughs> The I um, one of the many times that I was with Vincent, he uh, was in the summer of 75. He and his relatively new wife at that time, Coral Brown, who was one of the critics in Theater of Blood that he kills. um, They were doing a play in England called Ardell. And he invited me to come to the opening night on, on on the West End. He'd already had me come to uh, Brighton where they were in previews and I saw it there, but I was coming back on opening night and I decided to surprise him. So I upgraded my one ticket to a box seat for four and I went and I decided I'd do a double date and I would invite um, Patrick McGee, the great um, oh. character actor who had been in Clockwork Orange and Barry Lyndon, but it also starred with Vincent in Mask of the Red Death. And I thought, and I just interviewed Patrick for for Bazaar, and I thought, oh, great, I'll bring Patrick and his wife along. And, uh, and you know, Patrick had talked so lovingly about working with Vincent and how much they enjoyed each other, and I thought that'd be a great reunion for them. And guess who I took as my date? <laughs> I took Linda Hayden, who had just done Madhouse with him. <laughs> ah, okay. <laughs> and, so, and uh, so, so the four of us went, and we're in this box seat, and the a lot of the business in the play is uh, basically the the title character Ardell. You never see in the whole play. It's a it's a woman who is a hunchback and she's locked behind a a door in this um, sort of drawing room set and she won't come out. And basically the characters of the film spend the whole film trying to get her to come out. (laughs) And a lot of time is spent at the door of where they're talking through the door, pleading with her to come out. So unfortunately, the door was situated on the far left of the stage. Well, our box seat was on the far left of the auditorium and we could barely see, it was a, a bit of an obstructed view when people would be standing at that door. So we would be leaning way out over the rail to, to see Vincent Price or Coral Brown when they were up against that door. Well, we go backstage afterwards and we're talking to Vincent and and, you know, we said, well, how was opening night? You know, did you feel like the audience were enjoying it? And he said, yes, but, you know, we were so distracted because there were some people who were hanging way out over the balcony. We were so worried they were going to fall. And we were like, um, <laughs> that was us. <laughs> oh, so and we were the ones distracting you. <laughs> laughter. It was it was so funny. So funny. 
But anyway, but I digress. <laughs> that's okay. We we digress here quite quite a lot on the show. So that that is a great story, and I, I feel very privileged to hear it. <laughs> now, now I, I gotta I gotta uh, compliment you at least one point here before we get start talking about full moon and oblivion. Uh, at the at the time, I didn't realize it had been directed by you because it was I was in high school. It was in my early years. But uh, the first film I ever saw of yours, and it's probably almost as much a favorite of mine as the Oblivion films. But uh, acting on impulse, because it's kind oh, of a scream yes. queen, you know, serial killer scream queen, you know, who done it. And I I just I, I came to this film by the suggestion from Bring Stevens. Oh my God! Who plays a small part in it? She plays the waitress. <laughs> right, right. She told she told me about the film at a, a Fangoria convention uh, back in the you know there. Sought it out, and I just have to compliment you. I, it's still one of my go-to films. I love love that film. Oh, yeah. <clears throat> well, thank you. I I really appreciate that. It's kind of a lost movie. No, you know, very. It did come out on video and stuff, but it's never been out on DVD, and it just it just really pains me because it's one of one of my favorites that I did and the cast was just unreal. Um, I, I have to even look it up because I don't want to forget anybody. There were so many great people in this movie. Um, okay, here we go. And, and as you say, it was a scream queen who done it. It starred Linda Ferentino as a scream queen who is her producer has been found dead and she's the prime suspect and she goes on the lam uh, to try to figure out who it is and to prove her innocence. And, um, and then just all kinds of craziness ensues. And it also stars C. Thomas Howell, Nancy Allen, who of course I had become great friends with when I was working for De Palma. Uh, it also has Judith Hogue, uh, Adam Ant, Paul Bartel and Anne Mary Warnoff from Eating Raul, uh, Patrick Beauchamp, Isaac Hayes, the Oscar winner for the theme from Shaft, um, Don Most from Happy Days, Charles Lane, the great, great character actor from It's a Wonderful Life and, and a thousand amazing films. And he was always playing the grumpy accountant or whatever on I Love Lucy and everything. Uh, Peter Lupus from Mission Impossible, Kim McGuire, who was Hatchet Face and Crybaby, uh, Miles O'Keefe, who was Tarzan in the um, in the Bo Derek Tarzan movie. Um, Cassandra Peterson plays a yep. bouncer at a country western bar. Not Elvira, love that role. But she, love that role. <laughs> she, she appears in a blonde wig that she borrowed from Daryl Hannah and does kind of a Dolly Parton thing outside the country western bar. Zelda Rubenstein from Poltergeist, Dick Sargent from Bewitched. It was his very last film. He had cancer at the time, didn't, was afraid to do it because he was doing chemotherapy and he, his agent said, well, he has good days and bad days. He's not sure that, yeah, we only needed him one day. And they said, you know, he's just not sure it'll be a good day. And I said, let me talk to him. So I talked to him and I said, Listen, Dick, I will have someone on standby. If you're not feeling well, don't worry. You know, we will we'll have you covered. Um, but 
you know, the best therapy for you is to work. And if you're feeling good, then you, you should come in and do it. And he agreed on that basis. And of course, you know, you tell an actor you're going to replace him with an understudy. <laughs> it was a good day for him. And he showed up and he was the happiest camper. And at the end of the day, he thanked me for, you know, making him do it. And it was just it was incredible. But he he died a few months later. But I was so so felt so privileged to have gotten to know him and and, you know, provide him with with his last professional work. Uh, and then, of course, Brink Stevens. Um, and Michael Talbot, who was the guy in Carrie with PJ Souls going around collecting the ballots at the at the prom and, and switching them out with the with the forged ballots. And I, I mean, everybody's in this movie. There, there literally isn't a recognizable every every face is recognizable in this movie. So, yeah, you got to try to seek it out on uh, on an old VHS or something because it's uh, it's it's really, really fun. It was done for, it was a Showtime original movie, and I'm just amazed that it's kind of disappeared into the ether, but hopefully somebody will end up reissuing it at some point. Yeah, I'd love to see it like on actual, uh, something besides the VHS that I have, something like DVD yeah. or Blu-ray, you know, because the VHS, I'm, a, I'm an avid collector of physical media, but I like to upgrade just because uh, some of these old uh, physical media items, they, they just don't, you know, they got a shelf life. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. But speaking of, uh, you know, with acting on Impulse, and you're saying every face is a recognizable face, I think this is a good way to segue into Oblivion 1 and 2, and <laughs> um, which every face is an extremely recognizable face. But before we get too deep into the actual films themselves, I'd like, uh, I'd like to pick your brain of, like, how you came to, to, to work for Charlie Band and his, you know, whole full moon empire. Well, I had done, um, I'd done two movies up to that time, two feature films. I'd done Guilty as Charged with Rod Steiger as a madman who kidnaps murderers and fries them on his own electric chair. <laughs> and that also had um, <laughs> Isaac Hayes in it and Lauren Hutton, Heather Graham and Zelda Rubenstein and uh, all kinds of great people as well. And then I had done Acting on Impulse, which we just talked about. And my manager at that time was a former actress named Venetia Stevenson. Now, she had been in Horror Hotel with Christopher Lee. Her, her mother was Anna Lee, who had, um, you know, been an actress in, in Hollywood and had been in a number of big films. She was in Sound of Music. She was the next door neighbor in Whatever Happened to Baby Jane. She'd done a film with Karloff back in the day. And Venetia's father was Robert Stevenson, who directed Mary Poppins and all kinds of great movies. Um, so she was, you know, a real Hollywood kind of royalty kid. And um, but, uh, in, you know, after many years of being an actress, she kind of retired from acting and became a manager. So I was one of her clients and she suggested she knew Charlie Band and suggested that we set up a meeting with him. And we did. And Charlie had seen both of my films, Guilty as Charged and Acting on Impulse, and loved them. And he said that he was developing this project called Oblivion. And he started showing me all these concept drawings of some of the characters, all these, you know, great colorful characters and these sort of comic book style drawings. And 
um, and gave me the script by Peter David and offered me the movie <laughs> right there on the spot at the meeting. And uh, so it was really kind of a slam dunk whirlwind and it was just uh, it was just kind of meant to be. And I just fell in love with the material, loved all the the quirky quirkiness of it and the quirky humor and um, and I really wanted to play that up. And I started suggesting, you know, that we do some some kind of fun casting like there was a feline alien Miss Kitty who runs the saloon. <laughs> well, who better to play that than the original Catwoman, Julie Newmar? And so um, we just kind of went down the list like that. And I was like, OK, and then the town drunk. What if we got George Decay from Star Trek and. And then I added in some inside Star Trek jokes, like when he comes out of the saloon, I, I gave him a bottle of, of Jim Beam and he and told him to say, take a swig and say, Jim, beam me up. And, you know, just little silly things like that. And the, the Gaunt, who is the undertaker with, with um, extra sensory perception to know when and where to be when someone's about to die so that he can catch them on the way down to the ground. <laughs> um, <laughs> and what a power uh, to have, right? <laughs> exactly. I, um, I cast Carl Stryken, who had played Lurch in the Addams Family movies, and he's the giant on Twin Peaks, and and was just perfect for Gaunt. And we dressed him in, you know, this really tall uh, top hat, like, you know, uh, like Abraham Lincoln and designed his his uh, funeral home in the shape of a coffin <laughs> standing on, on end. Um, you know, and it was basically the shape of the coffin that I used to have in my room as a kid, you know, that very angular um, plywood coffin. So, um, Anyway, it was just the, the most fun ever. And and by then, I, Isaac Hayes had been in my first two movies. And, and so I brought him back to be in Oblivion as the, as the bartender in the, in the cantina scenes. And Isaac, you know, I loved Isaac as a musician, like theme from Shaft that he won the Oscar for. But also as an actor, he had been in Escape from New York, the John Carpenter movie. And... And yes, Truck yes. Turner, one of the black exploitation movies. And, you know, he was he was just the coolest dude. And so I had to have him. And just to finish the Isaac Hayes story, um, not only was he in the two Oblivion films, but then I brought him um, back to be to do a voice in Magic Island when the, the, the kids film that I did for Charlie. Um, there was a three headed tiki god. And I needed three distinctive voices for it. And I thought, oh, God, Isaac Hayes would be perfect for one of them. And then I also got Martine Beswick, who was a Hammer film um, goddess and, and Bond girl. She'd been in um, Thunderball and uh, From Russia With Love. But, it, but she had played Sister Hyde in Dr. Jekyll and Sister Hyde. And she had played um, the second female lead with Raquel Welch in One Million Years B.C. And um, and they have a big, you know, cat fight in that movie. <laughs> anyway, Martine's fabulous. And she has this really delicious British voice, darling. Mm, and, yeah. <laughs> and then I also got um, Terry Sweeney from Saturday Night Live, who was a friend of mine, who was the first openly gay uh, member of the Saturday Night Live cast. He used to 
back in the 80s. He used to do Nancy Reagan and drag and different things. And he had a really funny, cartoony voice. So between the three of them, you, they couldn't be more distinctive. Well, <laughs> right, you know, right. they all came together in a little recording studio and re-recorded their thing. And they had a great time. Well, Isaac said, you know, I've never done this before. A voice. I'm, I really want to do more of this. You know, how, how do I get into that, Sam? And I said, well, you know, there are agents that you need a special agent just to do, you know, voices for like cartoons or whatever. And he said, I want to do that. And so I introduced him to an agent and lo and behold, within a few years, he was doing the voice of chef on South Park. (laughs) (laughs) How things change, right? (laughs) It was all because of me. You can blame me for that. (laughs) Oh, well, we'll blame me and let you take credit for it at the same time, you know? (laughs) (laughs) Now, I got to ask, you know, uh, between Oblivion 1 and 2, I know they were filmed pretty much, they, they were filmed back to back. Now, well, how, they, they weren't filmed back to back. They were actually filmed together. They were right. Um, right. You know, we filmed it as I did it as one big movie, one long movie. And the concept, I think that Charlie had maybe done that before with maybe a transfers or whatever. I'm not sure. But I told him I immediately told him, for, first of all, we had to build that entire Western town in Romania from the ground up. Literally, when I arrived in Romania, it was a cornfield, um, oh, wow. which had to be leveled. I mean, we built everything and it became the first standing set on the back lot of what is now Castell Films. And it's been seen in a ton of different projects, including uh, the Hatfields and the McCoys, the Kevin Costner miniseries from a few years back. That's all filmed on the Oblivion Western Town set. Um, but at any rate, this it, it, even though the cost of building sets and labor and everything in Romania is very cheap, this was still a very, very expensive endeavor for Full Moon. Um, they did have a deal at that time with Paramount. So we did have more money than Charlie normally has. Um, it was, you know, a fairly decent budget in terms of, you know, the low budget world. Um, but it was, you know, we were starting to, things were starting to get out of hand and starting to get over budget. And so Charlie came to me and said, listen, we're going to have to shave off a few of the buildings on the town street, and we're going to have to shave this and shave that and, you know, cut it down to fit into the budget. And I was like, ah, all right, what if we made two movies, and that way we can amortize the cost across both movies and use the same set and everything, and do it like um, the Three and Four Musketeers, the the great Richard Lester movies back in the 70s that actually started out to be one movie. And during production, they realized it was going to be, you know, four hours long. And they decided to split them in two and release them separately as the Three Musketeers and the Four Musketeers. And, of course, then the actors had to, they had to renegotiate all their deals because the actors were only paid for one movie. And, you know, it became a big hoo-ha but <laughs> right, that all right, got settled. Right. And, um, and by the way, Christopher Lee is in those movies. Uh, <laughs> and <laughs> so, um, and I was just a huge fan of those. And I, and I use that as my template and, and example to Charlie, even though, as I say, I think he may have already dabbled in that world of doing two movies together. I'm not sure I was, I was the groundbreaker on that one, but, um, 
at any rate, we just approached it like one big movie. So if we were shooting scenes in the saloon with Julie Newmar as Miss Kitty, we would shoot every scene for both movies and and then move on to the next set. And uh, and so it was it was, you know, when you say back to back, you think, oh, we're going to shoot one movie. And then when we're done with that, then we immediately right, start right. the second one. No, it was all shot simultaneously together. And um, and it just worked out fantastically. And by the way, we you know, when I, when we decided to do two movies, we had to call up Peter David, who wrote the script of the first one and say, hey, uh <laughs> do you have any ideas for a sequel? And he says, well, yes, I do, because I'd already <laughs> written some outlines and, you know, this is fantastic news. And we said, okay, but can you get us a script in, you know, a week? <laughs> and miraculously, he pretty much did. I don't remember how much time we gave him, but it wasn't much more than a week. It was so fast. And, but he, he had already outlined, you know, ideas and everything and sent them to us. And we, you know, all agreed what it should be. And, and then he scrambled and got it all together. And and so that's how it became two two movies, um, you know, during during pre-production, because we just we needed I, I didn't want to compromise on the size of the sets. <laughs> that was the main reason. And beautiful sets. I think that's one of the things that stands out, you know, in my mind when I watch those movies is the sets the the, the yeah. wardrobe too ex especially you know is this like oh, it's visually it, when i saw the this you know ceiling fans hovering in the streets i was just like this is totally <laughs> sci-fi western done done right because sometimes people try to mesh those two genres together and it doesn't work i think with oblivion it works 110 percent oh that's that's very kind of you to say i i'm very proud of it i you know we just had our tongue firmly planted in our cheeks all the time, but we were having the time of our lives. It was just like everything that we loved as kids, we were just doing it. And, you know, even down to things like the stop motion animation of the giant scorpions was like, you know, I was a huge Harryhausen fan as a kid and all the Sinbad movies and everything. And, um, Valley of Guanji, which kind of has, you know, some some Western stuff to it as well. And, you know, all those things were just bubbling up uh, in the soup of, you know, this 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 whole um, great malang that we were doing. It was it was just so much fun. Now, would you say you you like compartmentalize things different differently with such a long shoot? You know, not necessarily doing back to back, but doing such a you know a massive film that you know eventually became two films. With was it a scheduling nightmare? Was it you know was it hard to stay sane on that? I I think it was a two and a half to three month shoot, wasn't it? Yes, it was, and it was not. Um, it was not. Uh, daunting at all. It was, it was just, you know, we went in, I went in prepped for it. And I mean, it was just, it just felt totally natural to me. It just felt like a, a longer running time. Um, and it, it, we, you know, we did have, most of our cast were there almost the entire time because they did appear on, you know, many, many of the sets. So they, we really couldn't shoot them out quickly the one person who was, had a tricky schedule was isaac hayes and so he did um we did have to contract 
his days, and it did cause us to have to revisit a couple of the sets that we'd already kind of finished off. And there was some continuity issues because one, some of the scenes that he had to do on the streets, by the time he came, you know, we started shooting in the early fall when it was still really hot out. But by the time he came, like in November or whatever, it was starting to snow and we had snow in the streets that we had to shovel or we had to get um, hair dryers to melt the icicles on the windows. <laughs> it was it was just crazy. But, you know, trying to intercut, see, the, you know, his bits of scenes with with other uh, pieces that we had shot when it was really warm outside was it was a bit tricky, but it but it all it all worked out and it all blended just fine. I'm picturing the movie magic happening with the PAs <laughs> with air dryers. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Melting. <Exactly>. We <laughs> had another problem in oblivion too. Um, if you recall, there's a cave and, and Richard Joseph Paul and uh, Maxwell Caulfield fall into the water and, um, and there's a creature uh, it, it, underneath them in the water that's like starting to attack them and um well this this cave set was built literally right behind on the facades of some of those buildings on the on the western town street it was on the saloon side of the street the saloon actually it was a full saloon if you could go through the doors and the the interior of the set was built right there but some of the buildings were just the facades and so behind some of the, those facades on that side of the street was this cave set that was built and they dug out a big pit to to fill with water and all this stuff well by the time we were shooting that it was freezing cold and the water was so cold and the actors, like, they like were going to have frostbite, at, you know, for two seconds in that water the first day we were shooting. And they, and they were like, we just can't do it. We can't be in the water for more than three seconds at a time. And uh, so we had to stop shooting and, um, and tell the production that they were going to have to heat up the water somehow. And, uh, and we'd come back the next day and, you know, we figured out some other scenes we could do without having to put them in the water. Um, so we came back the next day to do it. Well, they heated the water to the point of boiling. <laughs> I mean, it was, uh, it, was all, it was so hot. Now it was the opposite problem. They couldn't stay in the water long because they would just be beet red and they were going to be, you know, hard boiled. And, uh, so, I mean, it was just so crazy to go from one extreme to the other, but we managed to get it shot. And the, it, it, <laughs> that was a little tricky. We had to do some color correction because some of the shots, they were literally blue from being so cold. And in other shots, they were literally being red from being so hot. And we, would, we had to, in the color correction phase, try to even out their skin tones because it was pretty obvious. Oh, that sounds but like a you, nightmare. <laughs> if you look at those seeds, uh, you, you might detect a little bit of uh, difference between shots of their skin tone. Uh, the other thing was that we had, I mean, it's, it sounds so much like Ed Wood. The, there was going to be some kind of creature or tentacles or something that were going to come up out of the water and grab them or, you know, whatever. And, None of that was completed in time or somehow I think I think it was being constructed uh, back in Hollywood or and it got caught up in customs or something happened and it just didn't arrive. So 
we were like, well, we have to shoot this because it's right at the end of the schedule. We can't postpone it. So, uh, you know, I was it was like Ed Wood in that scene where they've got that dead, <laughs> that dead octopus or whatever. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And Bella yeah. Lugosi is like trying to make the arms look like it's doing stuff. Well, we oh, had poor Bella. Yeah, poor Bella. We had we didn't even have that much to work with. So I just said, okay, you're just going to have to when you get in the water, you're going to have to pretend and make it seem like there is a creature that's nibbling at your legs that we don't see because the water isn't clear. It's it's murky, dark water. And we're just going to have to believe you're going to have to make us believe that there's this unseen creature below you. And that's and that's exactly wow, they did it. <laughs> Oh, that's, that's funny. Just flailing around and screaming and, uh, and and trying to get out of the water. And uh, so, yeah, that one was was a bit daunting and kind of funny, but it, it worked out OK. And it was kind of interesting that, you know, your imagination can can go wild, probably thinking of something much creepier than what we could have actually shown on camera. <laughs> You know, and sometimes there's, you know, some truth to that old phrase that less is more, you know? Yeah. You'll leave yeah. them wanting yeah, We more. definitely embraced it that day. <laughs> well, I was going to ask you to regale us with a, a, a story about directing these epic films, but that I don't know that we, if you could really even top that one unless you got one, uh, you know, in the chamber <laughs> for us. <laughs> that, I don't know that there's a better story than that. <laughs> well, there's... The, I'm trying to think of other funny things that happened. Would, would Carl's... Carl Stryken, who's like six, I think he's six, eight or nine. Anyway, he's a very tall guy. And they said, you know, wow, we don't have a bed that's going to be long enough for him. Should we build a custom bed for him? And we're like, well, yeah, that'd be great. So when we got there and when Carl was checking into the hotel, which, by the way, was a former insane asylum. Um, oh, jeez. <laughs> uh I took him up to his room to kind of check out this bed that they had built. And somehow the measurements got lost in translation. The bed was about 10 feet long, but it was only about two and a half feet wide. <laughs> his oh, shoulders geez. were like hanging off both sides of the bed. It was absolutely hilarious. And he just kind of stood there and shook his head and just went, you know, no, just get me a king-size bed and I'll sleep diagonally like I always do at other hotels. <laughs> so that's what we ended up doing. <laughs> oh, Now, I got to ask a little bit about uh, uh, Magic Island and, and what it was like to go from doing these two huge, you know, science fiction Western epics in Romania to doing a kid's flick you know, for Moonbeam like Magic Island, what, what was that transition like? It was it was actually a very big film as well. And again, with funding from Paramount, so we had a little money. Uh, Magic Island was shot in Ixtapa, Zihuatanejo, Mexico. And it was also a, a big, you know, big undertaking. We had pirates and pirate ships, and we had a stone giant that was stop motion animation in the Harryhausen style. And we had, you know, all kinds of cool stuff in that. And it was, it was great fun to do as well. And also Andrew Divoff, who had played Red Eye, the villain in the lizard villain in Oblivion and Red Eye's brother, 
in Oblivion 2, identical brother, because <laughs> he's been <laughs> pulled apart by the giant scorpions in, in the first one, but we he was such a fabulous character. We had to have him back some way. So, oh yeah, he's got a brother. Can't, can't imagine the movie without him. Can't imagine. Can't it. imagine the movie without him. Well, in Magic Island, he plays Blackbeard, the pirate, and the main villain in that, too. And he's, he's just a, such a good actor. Oh, my God. I love Andrew so much. And uh, he did an amazing job. And in his uh, sidekick in Magic Island uh, was played by French Stewart from Third Rock from the Sun, who was hilarious as this very foppish um you know, it's kind of assistant to to Blackbeard, who would who was on the pirate ship, and uh, and the movie also had the main character in it was the young boy Zachary Ty Bryan from Home Improvement. He was one of the sons on that show, and uh, it was it was just great. We we had a fantastic time doing that one too. Now I I've got got to uh, ask you have directed. Uh... If I am correct, 47, just finished your 47th film. You have 23 writing credits, 20 acting credits, multiple books. You've written for multiple publications. I have to ask a personal question. When, if ever, do you sleep? Uh, I don't. (laughs) (laughs) I I gave up on that years ago. I'm a vampire. I just don't, you know, no, I, you know, I, I guess I'm just a classic workaholic. I can't sit still. During um, COVID, when things were really slow on the directing front, I wrote two books and and did an article. I did a big, huge career interview with Elvira that um, won a Rondo Award for. It was published in, it was a cover story in uh, the Dark Side magazine, the UK horror publication. And I... and I did the extras for the Frankenstein, the true story, Blu-ray, which is one of my favorite films from the 70s, the two-part NBC miniseries. And I won a Rondo Award for the, that, for the audio commentary, which is over three hours. And I went to London uh, to interview um, Leonard Whiting, who played Dr. Frankenstein for it. And then I did Jane Seymour in Malibu. And, you know, it, I'm just always doing something. <laughs> I just finished I, I'm this year I'm directing four ro- romantic comedies in a row in the kind of style of Hallmark. They're independent films. We're not sure who's going to buy them. Hallmark may buy some of them and it could go to Netflix, it could go to Lifetime, it could go wherever. But um we're I'm I just finished the third of four of them. I I do another one that starts prepping in September and shoots in October. And uh, and then I have, as I say, I have this book coming out. I start recording the uh, audio commentary on Tuesday. And, you know, I just I I just always have to have something on my plate, or I'm too restless. You know, I just I just love I love working and creating, and I've just got to do do stuff. <laughs> I, I I feel you there. I I feel like you know my hands stay too idle. I I start getting in trouble. Yeah, for sure, for sure. No, I and know I do, we. Um, I oh, do convention sorry. appearances when I get invited. I prefer the the smaller ones. I kind of get lost at the you know the big kind of Comic Con type ones. Um, but there's you know the small more niche ones. Like uh, my favorite is is uh, Monster Bash um, outside of Pittsburgh, 
because that really caters to, you know, old school people like me who love, you know, Vincent Price movies and, and Hammer films and all that kind of stuff, which is really in my wheelhouse. And they very often have, you know, guests there like, you know, Martine Beswick or the, the late Veronica Carlson. I, you know, spent time with her. But she died earlier this year, sadly, but she had yeah. done, you know, appearances there a couple times and and I got to finally know her pretty well um, by hanging out with her there. And, um, you know, it, those kinds of conventions I really love. Wonderfest I go to in Louisville, Kentucky. They have the Rondo Awards ceremony there. And I, I've been to Wonderfest there. once. It's a, it's a nice show. It's a very intimate kind of show very intimate it, it caters a lot to model you know makers and and you know model kit uh fantasy horror sci-fi kind of model kits makers and stuff but there's also the they've they've also got you know celebrity guests from movies and tv shows and and whatnot it's it's a lot of fun i just did this year pensacon in pensacola it is a bit of a larger one, and it was loads of fun. But guess who was there as a guest was George Takei, who I hadn't seen in years. And so we had lunch together, he and his husband, and um, talked all about our oblivion days. And it was it was great fun to reconnect with him after a long time. And uh, Richard Dreyfus was there. They had some really great guests. And um, so that was loads of fun. And so I, I love doing that kind of thing. If anybody out there runs runs one and wants me to come, be sure to get in touch with me because I I would love to do it. Um, you can reach you know you can get me on Facebook and Instagram. I'm pretty accessible. Now, I, I I know we went a little over our time here, but I have two more questions. If you got the 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 time, no worries. I've got all the time you need. All right. And I, I will put in a good word, word for you. There's a convention that we go to here uh, twice a year called Cinema Wasteland. That's in Ohio. That's an intimate kind of smaller show. That is actually the show that me and my wife met at like 12 years ago. So nice. It's, Whereabouts it, in Ohio? Uh, is from Cincinnati. Oh, that's funny. When I first met my wife, she was going to grad school at Xavier in Cincinnati. And oh wow! Uh, but it's in uh, Strongsville, which is up uh, near Cleveland. Okay. Cool. Yeah, but it's uh yeah we try to make it every year. It's like our midway uh, uh, anniversary point. We co- we considered it our second anniversary, the anniversary when we met, and then we got a real anniversary. <laughs> but, That's great. That's but really cool. The two additional questions I have are kind of uh, I call them wild card questions. Uh, the first one will probably be, be very easy for you to answer because I think I already know the answer. But <laughs> as a filmmaker and as a fan, what is your favorite comfort food movie, a movie that you can revisit and put on and watch any time of the day, night or week? Well, if you've ever followed me on Facebook or read my Wikipedia bio or anything else, you do know the answer to this. My favorite mm-hmm. film of all time, and, and whether we're talking about artistic triumph or popcorn movie or anything is Bride of Frankenstein. I yep. cannot, <laughs> I cannot get enough of that movie. I absolutely love it. Uh, everything about it. And even though it, things got cut out, there's a few little bumpy uh, continuity issues as a result here and there. I don't care. <laughs> I love every minute of that movie. And I think that James Whale is an absolutely brilliant, brilliant director. He's certainly someone who 
uh, it was very influential uh, for me. Um, he was also gay, and I really look up to him as a trailblazer and a role model. He, um, I was one of the producers of a film called Gods and Monsters yeah. that starred Sir Ian McKellen as James Whale. And we had in that movie, it was directed and written by Bill Condon. Yeah, brilliant the film. Oscar. Brilliant. Yeah, and, it, and Bill won the Oscar for that movie for Best Adapted Screenplay. It was based on a book by Chris Bram. Uh, that I actually wanted to direct, but uh, Bill had beaten me to the punch by a couple of weeks of optioning the book. But at any rate, I got to work on it as a producer, which was fantastic. And we we there's a flashback of Whale on the set of Bride of Frankenstein on the laboratory set, and we had to recreate that laboratory. Um, and I made sure it was recreated down to the letter. I mean, we even found the original electrical equipment that was created by Kenneth Strickfadden for the original Frankenstein and Bride of Frankenstein. And Mel Brooks had tracked it down and used some of it in Young Frankenstein. It had also wow. been used in the late 60s, early 70s in a, in a really skid row movie called Dracula versus Frankenstein. <laughs> Very familiar uh, with it. <laughs> yes. And, uh, and, and if, if you're like me, we read all about that movie in Famous Monsters of Filmland when it was coming out because Forrest J. Ackerman had a cameo role in it. <laughs> and, uh, but they had, they had gotten that same equipment. So it has quite a history. And, uh, but Anyway, when we were shooting on that set for Gods and Monsters of the of the Bride Laboratory set, the, the hair on the back of my neck was standing up all day. It was just incredible. What It was just a dream come true experience for sure. But Bride of Frankenstein it will always be my favorite. It's just really, really near and dear to my heart. And saw, you know, I saw it a million times as a kid and really identified with the creature. I mean, people talk about queer horror and, you know, to me, Bride of Frankenstein is the embodiment of that. I mean, here you have a freak of nature who is misunderstood by society and persecuted. And that's pretty much what gay people are. <laughs> um, and I, as a closeted gay, kid and then later teen and even as an adult i look back on that and i totally identified with the creature i didn't think of him as a monster the monster of the story is dr frankenstein for abandoning oh, sure. his, his creature and you know i just found the the karloff portrayal to be so sympathetic and and uh you know i cr i cried many times uh, in that film. And when he, he finally makes a friend with the blind hermit and then the woodsmen come in and the whole thing gets misunderstood and, and everything, um, goes awry. And then at the end of the film, when the bride rejects him, I mean, the poor creature is just, you know, he, he really goes through it and he's heartbroken. They have that, they have that, he's totally heartbroken. And that, that incredible close up of Karloff with the tear rolling down his face just before he pulls the lever to commit suicide and to blow them all to smithereens. That is, that, that's something. And I'm telling you, as a kid, I was weeping.
and, and I still do to this day. I mean, it's just, it's an, it's an incredible film. And uh, yeah, so anyway. <laughs> like also, I said, I thought I, I knew what the answer was, but I had to yeah. ask anyway, because it's the, the wild card question that I ask every guest. I had, I had to. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. we're down to our final Final question, and I, I feel like this could be the most important one, at least for my listeners and, and for myself as well. But finally, do you have any advice in people that want to sally forth in hard times? You know, like uh, every day is a hard is a hard day, but you know, especially with with, with COVID, this the, the the climate of the world is such the state of the world is such as it is. But do you have any advice in people that want to sally forth? in hard times, you know, as, as filmmakers or creative types in general? Well, the advice that I always give is that if you want to make it in this crazy show business, this show business that we're in, you really have to be passionate about it. It has to be in your blood. It has to be something that you are willing to dedicate your entire life to. You know, when I've had actors, aspiring actors will say to me, oh, you know, I want to come out to Hollywood and try to make it in in the business and I'm going to give it two years. And if I if I haven't gotten, a, you know, some kind of breakthrough or something, then I guess I'll just go back to Peoria and get a, a quote unquote regular job. And I just and I tell them, you know what, don't even bother, because if you're if you're already prepared to give up after two years of trying to, you know, break into this, then you're not serious about it enough. And there's way too much competition and you won't make it because you're just, you're not in it to win it. And, um, you know, if you're going to do it, you've got to have the attitude that I'm going to, I'm going to come out there. I'm going to give it my all. I'm going to wait tables. I'm going to do whatever it takes to pay the bills and and go to every audition I can or whatever, you know, I'm talking about an actor, but whether you're a writer or aspiring director, or whatever, um, you've got to, you know, you've just, you've got to be dedicated to it forever. I mean, I can't imagine doing anything else. And, and it just is in, you know, as I, as I said, since the age of eight, I knew what I wanted to do and I was laser focused on it. And I made things happen. I made, you know, I made sure that I met Brian De Palma because I was a super fan. And I made sure that, you know, I, I, I made those opportunities happen. And that's the kind of thing that, that I recommend to people that they've got to do. You can't just sit back and say, you know, well, I hope um, I hope the other opportunity is going to come knocking on my door. It won't come knocking on your door. You've got to get out there and make it happen for yourself. You've got to visualize um, you've got to do all those things that Oprah talked about on her show <laughs> to, uh, you know, make lists, put them on your goals, put them on your bulletin board and, uh, you know, just be proactive. That's, that's the only way it's going to happen. Now you talk about how everything is hard times right now and how the world has gone crazy and it has, but you've also got to have a positive attitude or, you know, you're just going to depress yourself into the grave. Right. Um, and, you know, if you go look at my social media pages, I don't talk about politics. I don't talk about anything negative. I don't even like to get into a debate about an opinion of a movie because people get too vitriolic about it. 
you know, it's art is subjective. You're going to like some things. You're not going to like some things. It's like trying to tell somebody they should like ketchup or not. You know, it's like you either have a taste for it or you don't. Who cares? Right. Um, if you don't I, like ketchup, so then keep, fine. More ketchup for me. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, I keep my social media pages totally positive and, and fun and funny. And so, you know, if you're tired of all the toxic toxicity out there on social media, just come to my page. <laughs> and you'll and become one of the sandwiches? Yes. I call my followers sandwiches. And the reason is... Um, you know, celebrities have uh, have names for their followers, like the Grateful Dead, the Deadheads, Lady Gaga has the Little Monsters, Barry Manilow has the Fanilows, Benedict Cumberbatch has the Cumberbitches, and I thought that his was <laughs> the funniest one of all. And uh, and so one of my followers said, "Well, you should have, you know, you should have a name for your followers." Now, you know. I'm I'm a legend in my own mind, so I'm like, of course I do, darling. I should have a name for my followers. <laughs> and so we held a little contest, and somebody came up with um, a guy named Mike uh, Mike Caffey, actually, that's his name. Came uh, came up with the name Sandwiches, uh, spelled you know S A M for my name, and then Witches, W I T C H E S, is an homage to all of my heart stuff and and because it rhymed with cumber bitches i just thought okay this I, i'm going with this so sandwiches is, is is the the tongue-in-cheek name for my followers and then i named my um book imprint uh where i published my books i named that knuckle sandwich books <laughs> <laughs> nice, so the nice. world conglomerate uh, corporation is knuckle sandwich and uh, you know we're t we're slowly taking over the world, uh, and taking it over one step at a time. I mean, with forty-seven films, <laughs> yeah, one film at a time, really. With forty-seven exactly. films, and it doesn't seem like you have any intention of slowing down, which I commend you for. Well, I I keep I keep waiting. I keep thinking they're about to put me out to pasture. I'm I'm not a spring chicken. I'm I turned sixty-six this year, but I'm I'm still kicking. I, I tell people, okay, I turned 66, but that's 18 Celsius, so I'm barely legal. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, they uh, they say, you know, there's uh, you got no choice growing old, but you, growing up is purely optional, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I have not grown up. I am an 18-year-old at heart, for sure. Nice, nice. Now, well, before we go and we bid you a fond farewell, uh, you'd already talked a little bit about your upcoming book and uh, the audio book that you have coming out. This will probably drop in the next couple of weeks here, you know, the beginning of September, mid-September. Do you have anything coming out, else coming out, <laughs> I should say, that you, want, that you want to plug real quick before we say goodnight? Well, um, no, that's pretty much it. This new book is called I was a teenage monster hunter and it'll be on amazon sometime in late september early october so keep, keep an eye out for that the movies that i've been directing this year have they are not sold and so they're not dated or i can't tell you where you're going to be able to find them but ah, if you gotcha. follow me on facebook and instagram i will i will update people the second that i know so you, you'll be able to find out that way
Well, right on, right on. Well, I, I want to thank you, sir. Uh, it's been a pleasure picking your brain a little bit. And uh, I, I feel like we barely scraped the surface of your like expansive <laughs> career because you, you are, you know, uh, James Brown got, got the the nickname of the hardest working man in show business, but I think that belongs to you because my God, <laughs> you know, well, I'm, I, you say you don't I'm, sleep I'm and you're I'm a vampire, but I'm, even I'm trying to compete. <laughs> even vampires need need a little bit of sleep every once in a while. They got to sleep during the day at least. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So, okay, I'll try. <laughs> With that being said, again, I want to thank you for taking a, a massive chunk out of, uh, out of your day to do this show, and hopefully maybe someday we can get you to come back for a follow-up interview for Oblivion 2. I love it. I love it, Cameron. Anytime. <laughs> Happy to do it. All right. Well, thank you very much, and uh, folks at home, thank you for listening, as always. 